Hi, and thank you for joining us today for our virtual copper conference. With the movement toward electrification, the demand for copper will increase exponentially in the years to come. A traditional gas car only uses 50 pounds of copper, but an EV requires over 150 pounds of copper. In addition, the EV infrastructure will require huge amounts of copper that just doesn't exist. Both Goldman Sachs and McKinsey estimate copper demand will increase from current levels of 22 million tons to over 50 million tons by 2035. Goldman Sachs said they now expect copper to be undersupplied by 2023 and peak supply will come in mid-2024, generating deficits from that point on. Where will the price of copper go in the coming year and how can we profit from this move? We have assembled some amazing speakers and industry experts to answer this question, beginning with Sri Gagukar of Sprott Asset Management, followed by Gary Thompson of Bricks the Metals, Stefan Iono of Cormark Securities, Irfan Kazimi of Horizon Copper, Claudia Tornquist of Kodiak Copper, Greg Johnson of Metallic Minerals, Paul West Sells of Western Copper and Gold. And we conclude with Sonia Scarcelli of BHP Explore. As a reminder, we will have an open chat on the right-hand side of the screen. If you have a question or comment, please use the chat. I want to thank our corporate sponsor, Sprott Inc., a global leader in precious metals and energy transition investments. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube, and you can also listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoy the conference. Hi, Shri. Thank you very much for joining us today. You are a portfolio manager at Sprout Asset Management, and you and your firm are very bullish on the energy transition movement. And this movement will require a, a lot of different metals, including copper. And this is where I want to focus our discussion today. And maybe we can just start with why you are so bullish on copper. Well, like with most commodities, the reason to be bullish or bearish on a commodity all comes down to one thing, which is a supply-demand balance. And as it relates to copper, we have seen the, the amount of mine supply of copper uh, be, remain around the 2021 million tons for the past five or six years, uh, while the amount of lease cycle supply that's been entering the market has been somewhere between three and four million tons per annum, whereas the demand side of things uh, has continued to pick up. And this year, for example, we'll likely find ourselves uh, on, on the razor's edge of, of supply barely meeting the demand. And as we progress through the years, we're likely to see demand for copper grow by around half a million tons per annum um, conservatively, or could be even higher. And for this reason, it is very easy to be bullish on copper, especially as the demand side of the picture is concerned. Uh, when we look at the supply side, there are not a lot of new mines that are coming on stream. Uh, a lot of producers are really struggling to maintain their production. 
So we're going to be looking at a scenario where the world needs more copper, the mine, the miners want to mine more copper, except they can't really mine more copper. And so we're going to have a scenario where supply is, is just not going to keep up with the demand for copper. So for that reason, we're quite bullish on copper. And you raised a couple of elements here that I want to hone in on. And the first one being demand. A lot of this has to do with this movement toward electrification and also EVs. EV sales in 2022 is 10 million versus 6 million the year prior. And of course, this is going to require a lot of, of copper. So maybe you can just touch on that and the growth in the EV sector and how this is going to impact copper. Sure. The the amount of growth we have seen in electric vehicles has been quite phenomenal. Uh, last year alone, like I said, uh, around 10 million electric vehicles were sold around the planet. And what many people... Uh, are just now starting to begin to realize is just how much more copper goes into EVs. Uh, a typical EV needs somewhere between three and four times the amount of copper uh, versus a traditional gasoline-powered vehicle. Now, where things get really interesting is that EVs don't just drive themselves. They need electricity to drive themselves. And in order to have the infrastructure uh, be there so that people can drive their EV from point A to point B and be able to charge uh, it's somewhere in between once or once or more, uh, you need to have all these charging stations set up and all these charging stations and the associated infrastructure uh, require quite a bit of copper uh, just to kind of lay it all out and, and have it be there. So for this reason, the amount of uh, copper that's going to be uh, taken up by this whole electric vehicle movement or, or really the revolution that's underway is is going to catch a lot of people by surprise, and it's uh, probably going to catch many uh, countries and 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 some companies even uh, to be on a little bit flat-footed. Uh, and the same thing can be said about uh, a lot of these uh, electricity uh, producers as well. They just won't be able to keep up with it. You also made a comment earlier about the geopolitical situation and how that will impact the copper supply. And the two largest producers of copper are Chile and also Peru. Maybe you can just touch on how important these two countries are in terms of global production and what's happening there in terms of the geopolitical situation. So right now, uh, like I said before, the total amount of mine supply uh, coming out from all the countries around the world is around 20, 21 million tons per annum. Out of that, Chile represents 5.5 million tons per annum, give or take. And then we have another two and a half million tons of supply coming out of Peru. So the number one and number two um, countries or, or producers of copper put together are putting out around eight million tons of, of supply versus about a 20 million uh, ton of total global mine supply. So it's quite easy to see how why these countries are as important as they are for the for the copper uh, supply chain. Now, what we have seen recently is. Uh, a couple of things happened. So Chile, for example, um, there have been there has been, um, I guess, a little bit of uh, interest from from the government to try and increase the taxes that the, the copper industry pays, uh, as well as trying to lift the royalties. Uh, this all was going on over the last couple of years, um, and and thankfully the changes that were made uh, to the for the for the taxes that the copper producers have to pay. 
uh, were relatively modest, and and the impact as a result was not that bad. But uh, more recently, the same the same government out of Chile has tried to uh, make some noise in the lithium space. So they want to try and uh, bring uh, or, or actually nationalize some of the, the lithium projects that exist in Chile, for example. Um, so it, obviously, this sort of rhetoric uh, is is something which can cause a lot of investors to feel uneasy. And that type of uncertainty and the unease that exists makes it more likely for producers or, or developers that are looking to fund their projects uh, to be less likely to put the, the big capital outlays that are necessary to build new mines. So that's uh, the picture for Chile. Now, s- stepping over to Peru, uh, in the last few months, and this has been making headlines, there have been plenty of uh, social uh, unrest all across the country. Uh, this is as this is linked to um, previous president that was that was removed from office. And there have been spontaneous protests that have been that have been emerging out of various different parts of Peru. Uh, lots of clashes, lots of uh, violence between the authorities and protesters. And this all has a very negative impact on the mining industry because the protesters have been trying to, uh, I guess, They've been trying to make uh, it more difficult for uh, goods uh, and equipment to be able to move from point A to point B. And the mining sector especially has been quite heavily impacted. And then, of course, there was also the situation in Panama with First Quantum. Yeah, First Quantum has made a, a substantial investment in Panama to try and bring Cobra Panama uh, into production. And, and there was a very long protracted an intense negotiation that took place within between the government and, and the company to try and come to terms um, as to how the profits that are generated from this mine uh, will be shared between a private corporation and, and the government. It doesn't matter where you go in the world, the governments are always trying to take more, aren't they? It's, it's, it's just kind of name of the game, you know, anytime there's any material left in, in the price of any given commodity. And, um, if there are one or two outsized years of profits, the, the tax man cometh. So we talked about how the supply might be disrupted, but let's also talk about the demand side. And China is the world's largest consumer of copper at approximately 60%. And now that China is opening up again, what do you think this will do to the copper price of anything? So China has been reopening itself for the past several months now. What we did see happen is uh, for some of the commodities that China typically has uh, stored in its warehouses, that the, the inventory levels have been drawn down. And we have seen this happen with uh, copper as well. So China has been quite busy restocking. And as, as they kind of quote unquote reopen and as they try to stimulate their economy uh, to get it to grow the way the government uh, wants it to grow, will likely continue to see increased amount of uh, capital make its way into infrastructure projects uh, and, and other type of uh, stimulus measures, all of which are going to be quite beneficial for copper. So that's a great overview of the supply and demand side of the equation and how that might impact copper, the copper price. Now, I'm curious how you and your team value copper equities, and maybe you can just give us some idea of the analysis that you do on a producer versus a developer? So 
it's quite important to just uh, for us at least to try and uh, think about companies depending on the, the life stage or, or the life cycle that they're in. Uh, as it relates to exploration companies and developers, they don't have any cash flows, obviously. Uh, and, and as investors, we are oftentimes trying to figure out how much dilution uh, we have to deal with on the equity side or uh, how much debt these companies will have to take on in order to bring their production, bring their projects into production. Uh, so as a result, oftentimes we will value developers much more um, onerously or more or a bit more conservatively to speak uh, this way, uh, versus a producer. Producers have existing cash flows, their cost profiles that are very well understood. Uh, and, and so as far as producers go, we are typically using um, more of an analysis, trying to try figure out what the net asset value of the project is, uh, what, the, what, what type of cash flows can be expected, uh, various, various copper prices. Um, and we typically have a relatively decent amount of visibility uh, on their cash costs, bringing this copper out of the ground and, and uh, into a form that is useful for the end user. So uh, producers are typically valued more or less on, on, on the basis of their cash flows, on the basis of the NAV. Uh, and for exploration companies and developers, you're trying to do a similar level of analysis, but with less visibility because we don't really have a great window into what their actual costs will end up being like or when the project will be in production. And what copper price do you and your team use to value copper equities? So the price of any commodity that we use for analysis of any company really uh, is, is more or less close to spot prices because we typically try not to take a view as to which direction the price of the commodity is going to move. Um, we try and look at things as they are um, today. The only scenarios where we will use prices which are different uh, from the prevailing prices of uh, commodity is when we have seen a sharp increase in the commodity where maybe a, a stronger element of conservatism is warranted, or if you've seen a sharp, uh, a sharp decline in the price of a particular commodity, in which case it's okay to be a little bit more optimistic as to where the commodity can go. But generally speaking, we use, uh, we use the prevailing uh, metal prices. And how does the current valuation of the copper sector compare to historical valuations? Do you, do you and your team see good value in the sector right now? So if you look at how uh, the, the, the sector, and I'm talking about uh, the copper producers today, and there really aren't that many. Uh, and if you compare where they trade today in relation to uh, the past 10, 15 years, uh, you'll see that the, the valuations have more or less remained in a, a particular range. If you look at it from an EBITDA perspective, if you look at it on a price to cash flow perspective, and the valuations that we see today are not, and I'm talking on a, on a general level, are not completely different from where valuations have been for the past decade or so. Uh, but where we see value is in, uh, it's on a name-by-name -name basis. So it'll be in a, in a producer, for example, where we can see significant amount of my life extensions coming, which are perhaps not priced in it. Um, we, we can see value in, in certain producers that are perhaps being um, punished unfairly because of a poor quarter that was put out. And, and we try and take a longer term view on things. So uh, I would say there there is certainly value to be had in this space, uh, but it really is, is a function of uh, doing the work and, and trying to figure out which particular uh, security is is the one that should be um, bought. 
Sri, you brought up a very good point in that there really isn't a whole lot of copper producers out there. One of the reasons is because we've seen so much M&A in this space. Just in the past year, we saw Rio Tinto come in and buy Turquoise Health. And we also saw BHP earlier this year buy Oz Minerals. Hud Bay is currently buying Copper Mountain. And of course, there's been numerous overtures for tech resources. What are your thoughts on what's happening with M&A right now? And do you think this is going to continue? I think M&A in pretty much any commodity uh, that, you, that you look at, it, it's going to take center stage every so often uh, during the commodity cycle. Um, right now, like I said before, we are staring down a potential supply-demand imbalance with supply just not being able to keep up uh, with the demand. And a lot of the copper producers today see that as well. And, and for that reason, they're just out there trying to buy whatever supply that they can uh, for 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 a price that they view as being quite opportune. So uh, will there be more M&A in, in the copper space? Uh, I, I would suspect so. Uh, I mean, there's very little reason to believe why there wouldn't be any uh, more M&E. Um, the one couple of things that I'm also seeing right now is for uh, producers uh, these days to try and maybe, uh, I mean, depending on the producer in question, but more and more producers these days are trying to uh, focus their M&E in, in more safer jurisdictions uh, where perhaps the, like, Hud Bay and Copper Mountain, like you uh, just pointed out, uh, where the production is actually coming from countries with a very stable jurisdiction, with a very stable tax code, uh, and where the operating risk from social economic perspective is quite minimal compared to some of the more, uh, I guess, uh, jurisdictions that are still developing their mining industries. So I think that theme will likely play out where uh, producers look to buy uh, existing or future production in, in countries that are viewed as highly friendly. Shri, I know you and your team also cover the lithium producers. We've seen a lot, a number of OEMs come in and make equity investments into these producers. And we never would have expected this just a couple of years ago. But do you think we might see the same sort of thing in the copper sector where we see an OEM come in and make an investment in, an, in a copper producer? Uh, it's not something that I would rule out. Um, there has been... Uh, certainly a, a lot of chatter coming from the OEMs uh, as it relates to lithium, as it relates to nickel, and those are just the two commodities so far. Um, it would not be surprising if we are in a scenario where copper all of a sudden becomes uh, as tight as lithium is today. Uh, it would not surprise me to see OEMs start to become a little bit nervous and then perhaps make some investments uh, here and there to make sure that their security of supply is guaranteed. Shri, as we wrap up, where do you see the copper price going for the balance of 2023? So it's brought, we don't really forecast uh, the price of any commodity. We don't we don't publish any forecasts. But like I said before, uh, copper is, 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 a, is a rather unique metal right here right now in that the supply of copper is not growing at the rate that it should. Uh, but the demand of copper uh, is, is likely to keep growing and perhaps accelerate as electrification starts to take hold. So it's, uh, it's, it's not that difficult to see copper prices and needing to be sustainably higher versus where they are today. And the other thing I'll also point out is that uh, the mine grade of copper coming out of the ground continues to decline. So just because copper is becoming more and more difficult to extract, uh, the price of 
getting this copper out of the ground uh, does not go down just because uh, as a result of the grade going down, mine, mine costs grow up, go up. So we're likely to see uh, higher prices as a, as a necessity in order to guarantee the supply coming out of the ground. It's a very good point. Yeah, that was a great overview of the copper sector, and I want to thank you for sharing your insights with us today. And I look forward to our next discussion. Oh, thank, thank you for that, Jimmy. Always a pleasure. Did you know that every time you hit the subscribe button, your name goes into a draw to win $1 million? I'm just kidding. But if you do subscribe, we will be very thankful. Thanks for your support. Hi, Gary. Thank you very much for joining us today. Brixton Metals is an exploration company with four projects, but I want to focus on your most advanced project, which is called the Thorn Project. It's a copper, gold, silver project located in northern British Columbia. And Thorn is located along the trend of the Golden Triangle. And before we examine Thorn in more detail, I want to briefly discuss the activity in the Golden Triangle. There's been a lot of investment in recent years by many of the majors. So maybe you can just give us a brief overview of this activity. Sure. Uh, hey, Jimmy, and uh, yeah, glad to be uh, glad to be on. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of activity uh, in in the Golden Triangle in general. Um, as you mentioned, we're on trend. We're a little further north uh, than uh, than the main activity there. But yeah, you're seeing a lot of the majors. Um, you know, as most people know, they're they're getting uh, quite hungry for um, the next uh, big copper plays and and uh, and demand for copper is quite strong. So you know you're seeing just recently in the news, uh, Glencore taking a run at uh, at tech. Um, that's still I think in in play and and we'll see how that uh, that plays out. Uh, of course, you have an ongoing uh, Newmont um, Newcrest uh, potential merger. Um, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and even what's interesting is even the large gold companies are. Uh, looking for for big uh, big copper plays, and you know, there's a saying that uh, uh, some of the largest gold deposits in the world are copper porphyries. Um, so you do get a lot of gold with these uh, copper systems. Recently, uh, Newmont uh, took over GT Gold uh, in uh, in the Golden Triangle. So there's there's certainly lots of eyes on on the play. Um, I think there's a lot more excitement to come out of that. Um, it's a big area, you know, it's something like a 500 kilometer long uh, trend. There's lots of activity, and I think we'll see a lot more, uh, a lot more exciting uh, transactions, and you know, in, in that M and A front. And Gary, remind me again, what properties do Tech Resources own, and also Newcrest? Um, well, Tech has the Galore Creek, so Tech and Newmont for fifty-fifty on the Galore Creek, which is a very large uh, copper gold porphyry system. Uh, Tech also has, I think, a seventy-five percent interest with the Copper Fox on the Shaft Creek. 
which is not that far from um, from uh, Galore Creek, um, as well as other other assets in the area. Uh, New Crest uh, recently actually acquired. Uh, I did mention that, but they acquired uh, Pridium for the Bruce Jack uh, high grade gold mine, and then of course. Um, uh, Newcrest has, uh, I believe, a 75% interest in the Redcrest mine, which started off as a open pit, and now they're working on a uh, a deep block cave, and they're having success in finding new uh, new deep style mineralization. I believe Imperial Metals is is the 25% uh, owner of that. So lots of activity. There's a lot of companies um, that have uh, mine development plans. Uh, you have Seabridge with the KS massive KSM. Uh, which is a, one of the largest uh, copper gold systems up there, and then to our tutors not far away. So a lot, a lot of players uh, in in the area. Gary, that's a great overview of the Golden Triangle, and I want to move on now and discuss your Thorn project in more detail. You and your team have done extensive drilling on the property in 2022. 58 holes were drilled, totaling 18,000 meters. Can you provide an overview of the 2022 drilling campaign? Sure. Yeah, most of that drilling, uh, which was, uh, you know, the most extensive drilling that the company's ever done and, and the projects ever seen. So that was pretty exciting. Um, yeah, we we really focused on um, the Camp Creek porphyry discovery. That was uh, really flushed out or at least identified in, I would say, 2019. We started to show evidence of uh, porphyry style mineralization at depth. And it wasn't really till 20, 2021 that we started to push uh, these holes deeper in, into the system and and showing evidence of, of poor freestyle mineralization. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, we definitely confirmed a uh, what we believe is a large uh, a system. We've, we've nowhere near tested the limits of that, but we're, we are into a copper dominant uh, porphyry system in Camcrete. We're calling it the Camcrete corridor because it doesn't include some, some of the high solvidation veins and, and breaches that um, that we were drilling uh, prior to uh, 2020 and 2019. Um, but also the other part of the campaign uh, last season, 2022, was focused on the Trapper Gold target. As I mentioned earlier, um, Brixton didn't uh, own those claims until 2020. The previous operator had drilled about 40 holes um, in that uh, in that Trapper group. And, and some of that historical work was actually done by Chevron as part of the regional work. Um, so we we followed up really on the on the work that was done in 2011. Um, so we did some some drilling uh, with some some really good results um, on on the trap for target. I think we got about 52 holes in it in 2022. Um, some exceptional long intervals, uh, and which which we can talk about. Um, so that was the main main driver. The other thing that we did um, because again we didn't own the Metla claims um, uh, that we acquired you know until. Um, 2020, um, in the previous season, there's way too much snow, so we didn't get a chance to get out there and really do some work on it. But last season, 2022, we had a lot of uh, boots on the ground work on the Metla target, and we took a lot of uh, samples. And I'd say if you look back at some of our our numbers and our presentation, we've got a lot of really high grade copper gold numbers uh, uh, surface sampling that we've done. So we're really starting to flush out some of these other areas. I mean, there's still lots of work to do there. But so, you know, what's working here is is geochem. Um, soils and, and rocks seems to work quite well for us. You know, we continue to run geophysical surveys, uh, geochem mapping, 
uh, essentially trying to work up some of these earlier stage targets to to the drill stage because it is such a large area. Um, you know, we just can't work them all. So we're, you know, we're, we are ranking these uh, targets and kind of working our way through the list, if you will. And Gary, maybe you can just touch on some of the holes and the grades associated with those holes at both Trapper Gold and also Camp Creek. Sure. Yeah. The Camp Creek, um, I mean, we're drilling, I think our deepest hole was, uh, 1375 meters. So we're, you know, we're still in mineralization. Um, the, what's interesting about the Camp Creek target, um, and a lot of the work that was done, you know, early on was really focused on the surface. Uh, we've got these high grade, high solvidation veins and, and breccia zones and we drilled some, uh, pretty spectacular uh, results out of that. Uh, 2019, we drilled hole 150 that drilled 554 meters of uh, just over 1% copper equivalent. Uh, within that was about 136 meters of uh, over 2% copper equivalent. And then about if you take about a kilometer step to the west, um, where we have a cluster of holes measuring about, you know, six, 700 meters. Um, you know, we had, I think our longest interval was 967 meters of about 0.4 copper equivalent uh, with about 150 meter sub-interval of, I'm going to say 0.9% copper equivalent. Uh, 184 was one of our better holes, so we actually ended in quite strong mineralization, uh, just shy of 1,200 meters. Uh, that hole was 820 meters of almost 0.5 equivalent copper, and with a sub-interval there of about 300 meters of, um, I think, 0.9 copper equivalent. So we're starting to, I think I'd say we're starting to approach some economic grades here. Um, we don't believe that, you know, we're in the heart of the system and that's what we're hoping to uh, test this year uh, on the Camp Creek system is, is one is to expand, expand the, the known limits of mineralization, uh, which we believe we've got a big footprint here, something like a kilometer by 2K. Uh, so we want to try and bulk out the expansion there, but also try and show you know, where the higher grade portion of the system is, because most of these porphyry systems have a enriched, um, let's say necessarily a center system, but maybe it's on the side, but somewhere there's going to be a, an enriched a zone that will be sort of the starter uh, area. And that's, we want to try and see if we can tap that to really, uh, you know, fire this thing up. Now, if you shift over into the tracker gold target, which is about eight kilometers uh, in in the sort of a south uh, southeast trend from the Camp Creek target, Right now, it looks more like a, a gold target. We're calling it the Trapper Gold target, but it is associated with base metal veins, and there are some pretty interesting copper showings um, peripheral to uh, the main gold uh, mineralization. So we believe that potentially there is a, a copper porphyry driving, uh, perhaps driving the Trapper uh, system, and it's not too uncommon to have precious metal enrichment uh, uh, higher up in the system, and then as you get deeper, you start to get into the copper part of the system. But some of the drilling uh, we did in 2022 uh, at Trapper, um, one of our better holes, hole 205, was 64 meters of 5.74 grams of gold. And it was around, I think, 30 meters of 10 gram uh, was a high-grade sub-interval. Um, we also had uh, hole 243, I believe, that went down uh, almost 400 meters uh, of uh, just under a gram. And within that, there was about 114 meters of almost two and a half grams gold. Um, so there are some quite high grade sub intervals. And what's interesting about that target is the uh, the intrusion is a little bit different than the Camp Creek, but similar age. 
and the contact between the the diorite porphyry intrusion unit to the much older uh, um, Stuhini uh, Lapilli tube volcanics, that contact seems to be important. And while we get gold mineralization in, in either lithologies, that contact between the volcanics and the and the diorite intrusion seems to have the enrichment part of the system. And so it has, it looks like it has a sort of a north plunge to it. And the goal really is to um, try and expand the the strike of that, but also down plunge and uh, and try and see if we can understand what maybe the true width of that system is, because we haven't we haven't drilled that up uh, either. Gary, you threw out a lot of grades here, and I want to put all of this into perspective. New Crest owns the Red Crest Mine, which is located in the Golden Triangle. It's a copper gold producer. How would these grades compare to what Red Crest is mining? Well, Red Crest is mining uh, 0.4 copper, 0.4 gold um, is their is their reserve grade. Um, you know, I wouldn't. I would say we're not quite there. We're I'd say we're approaching um, economic grades here. Um, it's going to take a bit more work, and like I said, we're we're trying to find that higher grade portion of the system that you can sort of start to build some economics around. I don't think we're quite there yet, but are certainly demonstrating um, that we're onto something significant here. Um, it is a new discovery, and it's um, you know it's in it's in the making, and and that's going to take take some time. You know, the challenge with the the drilling the deep holes is that they take time. They're you know they're four or five weeks to drill uh, drill one of those holes, so. It's not a it's not a quick uh, quick endeavor there, but uh, it's looking pretty looking pretty exciting. Gary, you've stated in the past that the style of mineralization indicates that you might be on the edge of a very large copper porphyry. Can you just expand on this and why you think this deposit can become much larger? Sure. Yeah. Well, the drilling that we've done uh, so far has, I mean, I'd say almost all the holes, uh, deeper holes, have uh, ended in and copper porphyry style mineralization. And I think the footprint right now is about six, 700 meters. Um, so it's still open. Um, there's evidence, like if you look at some of the earlier drilling uh, that we did, um, you got about a kilometer in that sort of northwest, southeast direction. We're having these surface expressions of mineralization in a sort of a kilometer in one direction and potentially a kilometer, two kilometers in the, sort of up the Camp Creek direction. Um, we haven't quite tested past uh, the old band diatreme brecher, which is about a kilometer in itself. So lots of drilling to do in and around that, so kilometer by a kilometer. And then the goal would be to, well, what's happens above that uh, further out to the east? We don't know because we haven't drilled past that. But part of the challenge is we do have a younger volcanic cover that covers it. So there's no evidence that it's there because it's covered up by younger volcanic. So we're going to have to do some uh, kind of wildcatting out there to see... Um, but you know the geophysics that we have there um, actually has an interesting deep conductor. So we do have some evidence for a bigger system uh, through the geophysics, and um, we're just going to have to drill it uh, to find out. Gary, I want to move on now to discuss BHP's involvement. In November of 2022, BHP made a $13.6 million investment in Brixton Metals for 19.9% of the company, and the purpose was to focus on the Thorn project and there are a lot of copper exploration companies operating in British Columbia. What was it exactly about the Thorn project that the BHP team liked? Yeah, well, I think it, a couple of things, um, you know, have such a massive land position. Um, one of the comments, you know, that we heard from, from the BHP group was that, um, you know, they believe we have a complete mineral system here. 
And I think what they mean by that is that, you know, we've got an opportunity um, to find not one, not two, perhaps more uh, pore-free systems. And it's quite well known that these these pore-free systems tend to form in clusters. Um, you know, part of the challenge in the mining business is when there's a new discovery found, uh, a lot of the explorationists get out there and state claims and acquire ground. So they tend to have sort of fragmented uh, ownership. And the fact that we have been fairly aggressive in uh, building uh, what now is almost 3,000 square kilometers of, of mineral tenure, I think is quite impressive in, in that. So lots of opportunity to uh, find um, the next big copper discovery, I think. And I think that's got to be uh, that's got to be one of the big reasons. And Gary, how involved is BHP in picking targets and determining the direction of the Jella campaign for the coming year? Um, well, we formed a technical committee, um, so two BHP members, two Brixton members on the technical committee, and then of course we have lots of team members uh, behind that. So we are uh, really working as a group here to, you know, find uh, find the next big discovery uh, for copper. So I think what we're you know, the way we kind of look at it is like, you know, there's a lot of di- sub-disciplines within, within geology and exploration. So we're trying to bring all that together um, to build, uh, build confidence. And, um, you know, we are working as, as, as a unit to, uh, you know, to get, get at it uh, quicker. Uh, one of the things that um, we're excited about um, uh, working with BHP, they've got a very deep geophysical uh, department. And uh, one of the things that we did uh, last year, we collected a lot of data from, from the deep holes of uh, physical properties. And why that's important is because we're going to integrate that into a new revised uh, 3D inversion uh, geophysical model um, because we flew this big uh, mobile MT survey. And so that's going to give us some um, confidence because we know what the assays are, we know what the physical properties are, put those together into the model, and then what does that look like? And then does, can that show us maybe where to go? So to, to try and integrate that into some vectoring in into the next leg of drilling, perhaps. So uh, we're looking forward to seeing that. So that's going to be um, uh, exciting uh, uh, to sort of hang your hat on, especially when you're drilling deep holes. It's, you know, kind of drilling blind there. So yeah, it's been really good. BHP has been, been great to work with. And so let's talk about your drilling program for the 2023 season. How many meters, how many rigs, and what targets do you have identified? Yeah, so we're planning about 20,000 meters uh, drilling um, right now, starting with about two drills uh, in, in Camp Creek, and then we'll ramp up as the uh, winter peels off. Um, we'll start, we'll probably push it up towards four drills uh, towards, in, you know, mid-season, I would say. Gary, let's move on now and discuss your balance sheet. Cash is the lifeblood of an exploration company, and you have the distinct advantage of being fully funded with $17 million in cash. How will you allocate this cash in the coming year? Yeah, well, we you know we're focused pretty much 100 percent on on Thorn, and and right now we've got a board approved budget for about 14 million of that 17. So that that'll carry us through the end of the year for sure. Uh, we're we're in good shape. I um, mean, we are focused on Thorn, and and it's again largely going to go to drilling, but we're going to do some some geochem and, and some additional geophysics. Gary, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow in the coming months from Brixton Metals? Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, as we get into the summer months, I mean, we're we're trying to get an early start on it. Uh, we know we're pushing for mid-May to be the drills turning to the right. So I would anticipate uh, getting results out to market sometime in July, perhaps, because it is still a process to get through those deep holes. 
And then, you know, from July right through to the end of the year, perhaps trickling into uh, into next year, I'm hopefully that the labs, um, you know, have improved their um, turnarounds, but we'll have to see on that. So if you look at what happened last year, we got an early jump and we had results turned around uh, quite quickly, but towards the end of the year, it was taking months uh, to get those results out. So, uh, you know, we should have a good amount of news flow coming out this year. So uh, keep an eye on uh, Camp Creek and keep an eye on some holes coming out of Trapper. Well, Gary, that was a great overview of Brixton Metals, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today, and good luck on your upcoming drilling program. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Hi, Stefan. Thank you very much for joining us today. As a research analyst, you focus on base metals, including copper. And because there's so much happening in the copper space right now, this is where I want to focus our discussion. And I want to start with how you and your team value copper producers versus developers. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, right off the bat, obviously, copper producers have the luxury of having cash flow that they're producing. Um, and so, typically, the market and, and analysts really focus on the near-term or nearer-term cash flow generating power of the company uh, and the mines underpinning the company. So, you know, a lot of producers, one of the key metrics we look at is is cash flow per share, either, you know, in terms of right now, it'd be on a 2023 basis or maybe even 2024, um, some hybrid if there's some expansion in the near term, but really focused on that near term cash generating power um, in terms of how, you know, what metric do we use specific to cash flow? Um, I think if you look historically, at the base metal space, I, I find most producers in that mid to 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 large cap sector trade between five and six times cash flow um, in sort of uh, bullish markets. Those multiples expand, so you might see a company getting upwards of even six or seven times. With the majors trading at the top end of that spectrum, the mid tier is a bit lower. Um, and obviously, in, in, in times when 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 sentiment is not there, copper pricing is lower, base metal pricing is lower. You'll see obviously those multiples retract as well, uh, reflecting again that added uncertainty and and lack of sentiment. So that's a good overview of producers. What about developers? What do they do? Sure. sure. So and then when we when we think about developers, obviously developers don't have the luxury of generating any cash flow, at least in the, from a near term perspective. So the, the, the key metric we then revert to is, is the nav of the company or, or the underlying projects in the company. Um, and so using a discounted cash flow valuation uh, to, to value the intrinsic assets uh, and balance sheet. Um, and so when I look at most developed stage companies, I, I typically look at something that's on the order of 0.8 to one times nav, key being though that's on a fully financed basis. So I calculate the nav in dollars, millions, uh, but when I'm dividing by the share count, I'm using a, a pro forma share count that reflects the cost of capital to build the mine as well. So any equity dilution that we anticipate might factor into the equation. So that's that's very key. Um, when you look at a lot of companies now, if you take their you know, uh, current market valuation and, and factor that into the project nav, you'll find they're trading at some, something like 0.2 or 0.3 times nav. Um, and so when you look at my 0.8 to 
or to one times it's there's a big discrepancy there but again it's that fully financed consideration that's that's very important hud bay is currently trying to acquire copper mountain and copper mountain is a producer but it also has uh, big expansion plans what would you use to value a company like that that is producer but also has upside potential associated with exploration and development yeah no definitely we um in a case like a Copper Mountain, we get into a scenario where, like you said, there's sort of two sides to that story, both existing cash flow and then and then future growth. And and obviously that future growth isn't captured when we look at, you know, this year or next year's cash flow profile. So we then get into sort of using hybrid metrics, if you will. So Copper Mountain, I was using a or I still use a, a 50-50 valuation or 50-50 weighting to um, uh, you know, a multiple on, on this year's cash flow, and then a 50% of my value is weight related to the longer term NAV. And uh, when we did that, you know, we ended up with a 275 target. HUD Bay's actually bid comes in at around 267 a share. So again, you know, looking at that metric, um, it, it, you know, to us, HUD Bay's paying you know fair value for it, and and, and Copper Mountain's getting a fair price for it. And so it's, it's a very very synergistic transaction that makes a lot of sense for both sides. So we've discussed producers and also developers, what about Explore codes with and without a resource? How would you value that? Sure. So again, it's like you're peeling back the onion one layer more. You have one less sort of thing to work with. Um, in the case of a lot of explorers, if, if you may have a resource to work with, um, and in that case, what a lot of uh, a lot of people will do is revert to sort of an in-situ evaluation. So take the number of, for example, pounds of copper in the overall global resource or blob um, and, and give it a pounds in the ground valuation. Uh, in the copper space, you'll find um, the copper group right now is trading around five cents per pound in the in the ground of in situ value. Um, uh, and, it, and again, it depends to a certain extent on obviously the, the quality of that resource, where it is, uh, what stage it's at, how much of it is in the higher competence categories like measured and indicated versus inferred. Uh, but generally speaking, you'll find in the copper space, um, a lot of these, a lot of the developers are trading right around five cents per pound in the ground right now, but anywhere from two to six or seven cents. Um, in some cases, you may not even have the luxury of having a resource yet. It's a you know a greenfield exploration project where they've got a few drolls and do a discovery, but we have no idea how big it is yet. Uh, and in that case, obviously, um, there's a, a little less. Um, quantitative analysis, a little more qualitative, that's when the geology really kicks in in terms of making a call on something. And at that point, you know, we may be trying to wrap our own heads around how big it might be. And again, looking at from an in-situ valuation point of view, uh, or maybe trying to wrap a very conceptual mind plan around it to, to gener generate a nav. But in either of those cases, we're going to risk adjust those, that, those modeling exercises with either higher discount rates, um, more conservative um, input assumptions to generate the nav or even the in-situ value and, and whatnot, just to, again, risk adjust that uncertainty because it is so conceptual at that point. One of the names you cover is Philo. It has a market cap of $3 billion, give or take, and it's still where near production. Where does it fit into this valuation spectrum? Yeah, sure. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, it, it originally, I guess, started off as, a, as an advanced stage a development project, if you will. Um, they did a lot of work early on to define a near-surface oxide copper gold deposit. They wrapped a mine plan around it, and and then at that point, uh, Philo came to kind of a fork in the road. And you know, they they the, the, the decision tree was either do we go ahead and and now proceed to develop this near-surface oxide copper gold open pit, or do we take a step back and and try and drill a bit deeper and see if there's anything underneath that open pit? They picked it, they they chose to do the latter. 
and and sure enough, uh, on within the first couple of holes, they had some incredible intersections, a thousand meters plus of, of high grade copper sulfides, and that really opened the the picture up into what's now the the Philo story and the three billion market cap. The interesting thing is 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 what's that 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 depth extent or depth potential, there's no resource around it yet. We're still just drilling, drilling, drilling. We know it's very big. We know it's got great grade, but we don't know how big it is yet. Um, and so we're kind of in a bit of a limbo in that we have some value we can ascribe to a mine plan up top, which would undoubtedly be a starter pit to the operation. Um, but we're still trying to figure out at depth how big and how great this thing really is. Obviously, the market is appreciating that it is truly world-class, though, with with the $3 billion market uh, market value on it right now. Stefan, two other elements that you use in your valuation models are the copper price and also discount rates. And I want to first ask you about your long-term copper price assumptions. What price do you use? Yeah, sure. So right now we're using 385 a pound copper just for this year and then 375 a pound thereafter for infinitum. And, uh, you know, admittedly, that's a, a fairly conservative price. Uh, I think, you know, most people investing in copper stocks and watching the copper market and just reading the news around the whole EV narrative are, are recognizing there's a very um, a very compelling argument for copper pricing to be a lot higher than it even is currently today, which is around four ten a pound. Um, you know, I think what we are seeing is definitely a migration both in the analyst community, but also in terms of numbers that you know, for example, buy side fund managers are using for their valuations, and also the mining companies themselves in terms of their internal thinking. Of, of how to value projects, the copper price is definitely shifting to higher numbers. Um, you know, a year or two ago, I think you'd see most feasibility studies were done at around 325-ish copper. Um, that slowly migrated to at least 350. Now we're seeing a lot of studies done at 375 even, and I've even seen a few done at four. Um, and again, two years ago, if I saw a study with 375, um, I think people would 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 be a bit nervous about that. Whereas now it's it's a pretty well accepted and comfortable number. Uh, out there, um, and that doesn't go just for the analysts. I think you'll you'll find that again with with what fund managers are using, and and again what the mining companies are using both internally and again what we're seeing in feasibility studies. And when you look at a major, what long term copper price do you think somebody like Freeport uses? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, they never really show all their cards, but I'm guessing it's something in the in the higher three dollar range right now. They don't want to go too high. Obviously, they they got to bake in some conservatism and and leave some upside for themselves, especially when it's an M and A transaction. Um, you know, you always want to stress test an asset as well. You know, I always argue, yes, I'm using three seventy five long term long term copper. That's probably conservative. I think it's conservative, but at the same time, if I can generate or, or, or uncover a compelling investment decision at 375 copper, it's only going to be that much better at 450 or even $5 copper. And I'm curious now if copper's trading around four bucks a pound, what are the stocks? And when I talk about the stocks, I mean the producers, the large producers, what copper price are the stocks factoring in right now? Yeah, sure, sure. So again, I think one of the interesting things we've seen more recently is again we've seen like we talked about earlier uh, a migration in the in the cash flow and the EV to cash flow multiples that a lot of the mid tier to bigger companies are being valued at. Like again, I said, you know, historically or typically, I think of a base metal mid tier being trading at around five times cash flow. That's now around six or even seven times, and I think what that's a reflection of again is is the is the market smart and they recognize that a lot of the forecasts that are out there in space right now are using conservative copper pricing like my 375 copper for example and so they've to a certain extent amplified um, their own internal valuations or way of thinking and that's reflected in higher multiples i think we're seeing the same thing with 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 the nabs as well again 
historically, most base metal guys, I would say mid-tiers would should and would trade around 0. 0.7 to 0. 0.8 times cash flow for producing asset. Um, now we're seeing them trade one or, or well, in, well in excess of one. Um, and, you know, just looking at some data that was out there recently, um, there's some, 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 it's pretty clear that uh, when you take those multiples, if you assume that the right NAV for a lot of these, again, mid-tier to established seniors is around one times NAV, and then back calculate what copper price you would need in your model to get that one times NAV, it's pretty clear a lot of these guys are being valued at least $4 copper and, you know, up well up with a lot of them around 450 copper. And there's even a few outliers at around $5 copper right now. So again, it, it shows that sentiment that's out there in the market, which is great to see, obviously. So even though copper is trading at $4 a pound in, in the spot market, the stocks are factoring them in a much higher copper price. In, in certain cases, yeah. Again, I, th I think at least $4 right now is what we're seeing. Again, if, if you believe that one times NAV is the right number, um, and there are a few, maybe they're outliers, but they are getting upwards towards $5 even, yeah. So that's a good overview of the copper price. What about discount rates? They're used as a function of risk. What discount rate do you use to value a producer? Yeah, so again, with base metals, my, my de facto standard is 10%. Um, if, if there's a big gold credit, for example, involved in a mine, gold projects like the gold analysts here in the gold community tend to value gold or precious metal assets with significantly lower discount rates, three to 5%, maybe seven, but three to five call it. Um, so in the base metals world, if I have a copper project with a big gold credit, I may pull my discount rate from 10 down to say eight, just to again, reflect that precious metals upside. Um, the flip side being if I have a project, again, that's uh, maybe in a challenging geopolitical jurisdiction, um, or maybe there's just not a lot of information around it. I'm building a conceptual model, say, with, with no you know, uh, mine plan, formally a technical report wrapped around it. Uh, I may migrate towards a 12% discount rate to, again, mitigate that risk of the unknown. Yeah. And I'm curious why there's such a large discrepancy between discount rates with a uh, base metal company versus a uh, gold producer. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it, it's an academic question for sure. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think it comes down to it, at least in part that uh, the idea that gold is money and, and gold has this intrinsic sort of shiny value to it um, drives a lot of that, that even more bullish sentiment for gold over time. Uh, gold's always been, you know, valued more favorably than the base metals. And it's, it's always interesting when I have a, you know, again, a, a company that comes in with a, a quote unquote copper project, but there's a gold kicker. And some of these copper porphyry deposits will have so much gold in them along with the copper that depending on your metal prices, they're actually gold deposits with copper byproduct credits. And uh, I always joke with them, you know, are you sure you want me to cover it and not a gold analyst? Because the gold analyst is going to value this project with a 5% discount rate. I'm going to throw 10% on it. And again, historically, when you look at even producers, the cash flow multiples that gold companies garner are, are, are significantly higher than what a base metal company would garner. So instead of five times cash flow, you're probably upwards of eight, nine, 10 times. So that was a great overview of valuations. I want to move the discussion now toward M&A. We've seen a lot of M&A in the past year. Rio Tinto acquired Turquoise Hill. BHP acquired Oz Minerals. Lundin has acquired Casseronis. And Hud Bay recently acquired Copper Mountain. What's driving this acceleration in M&A in the copper sector? Yeah, I think it's just a reflection of maybe some recognized urgency that's starting to evolve. Um, obviously, again, the, the narrative on copper is, uh, is becoming very bullish. Um, we're seeing the, the demand side and the demand forecast pick up 
drastically on the back of the ED revolution and, and electrifying our world. And, and I think the majors don't want to be caught flat-footed. So we're seeing more and more of a push to not only advance assets within their, in their own portfolios, but take advantage of some low-hanging fruit, especially if they're existing mines, established mines that offer production today versus something that may require, you know, permitting and development will be in production for another 10 years and, you know, on a good day. Um, so I think we're seeing some opportunistic consolidation starting and I'm sure, I think we're going to see some more of that over time. And do you think that's what drove the acquisition of Castoroni's by Lundin? I think so. Yeah, that was actually quite a strategic move. I think by Lundin, it it not only brought in an existing mine with established production into the Lundin portfolio. Um, the mine as we see it today is very complementary to the production profile of the other mining assets in Lundin. So it made a lot of sense just right off the bat. Um, but strategically, it's actually even more interesting uh, in that it's in this emerging area called the Vicuna District. It's the one mine that's there right now. But Vicuna is also the same area that hosts Philo Mining, which we talked about. It holds a, it also hosts another Lundin Group company called NGEX, um, which has a, a new, well, two new discoveries. One's called uh, Los Halados. We've known about it for a while, but a very recent discovery called Potro Cliffs. And then the district also hosts a, a project called Jose Maria, which is already in Lundin Mining, which is their next big development project. So by buying Casseronis, they've really now got the whole district consolidated within the Lundin group of companies, if not within Lundin Mining specifically. Um, so it's, you know, this is an area that could be transformational for Lundin as a whole over time. It's, uh, again, it's already attracted the attention of majors like BHP. They invested $100 million into Philo. Um, and one interesting thing that we're going to see this summer is an updated um, feasibility study on Lundin Mining's Jose Maria project. Um, all eyes are going to be on the CapEx cost of that. Um, undoubtedly, it's a big project. It's a heavy lift, even for someone like Lundin Mining. They're likely going to need a partner. The anticipation is it will be a major miner. And again, it's going to start to show how this district really evolves over time, but but really potentially transformational to Lundin Mining. Again, Castroni's not only brings the complementary assets today, but again, it's the keys to a district over time in terms of unlocking a lot of value and taking Lundin from a you know a larger mid-tier into something that's you know in the likes of the, the major major group out there. Stefan, I want to move the discussion now toward a macro view. And I just want to get your thoughts on where the copper price might be going here in the next year or two years. So, but as you know, China is the world's largest consumer of copper. They just came out of a three-year lockdown. Many research firms on Wall Street are saying that Chinese are going to be very aggressive in accumulating copper to make up for their depleted reserves. But at the same time, you have the world's largest economy, the U.S., heading into a recession, or maybe it's already in a recession. What do you think is going to happen with the copper price when you have these two opposing forces? Yeah, I mean, I think at the, at the end of the day, you know, barring the the potential recession, the U.S. not being an order of magnitude greater than people are anticipating, at the end of the day, the copper story is continues to be driven by China. You know, fifty percent of the world's copper is consumed by China, effectively, and so if 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 if, if the green light is on in China, the green light is on for copper. Basically, is the way I, I think about it. Um, obviously, there's influences from other parts of the world, but a, a strong Chinese economy it, uh, translates into a strong copper price, bottom line. And Stefan, even though the U.S. might be slowing down, the U.S. government has been very aggressive in pushing EVs. What sort of impact do you think that might have on the copper price going forward? Yeah, well, there's a bit of a shock thrown into the market just in the last week or so. 
um, with the U.S. government through the through the EPA announcing even more stringent um, rules on on combustion um, engines in terms of, of of guidelines to what automakers can produce, and really pushing for automakers to transition more quickly to a, an EV, you know, dominant fleet. Um, you know, the, the the latest numbers are by you know 2032. 67% of the cars sold in the US need to be EVs is the latest number. And so it's really the US government, you know, really focusing and, and driving that EV narrative, which obviously requires a lot of copper. Um, and, you know, with other um, initiatives in the States, um, you know, a lot of that copper also has to come from ESG fable jurisdictions, from friends of the US, if you will. Um, so it's that there's a whole other layer of complexity there as well, which has pricing implications. Um, so it's going to be very interesting from a copper demand point of view. What I'm really curious to see is, is you know, are those um, forecasts or those those new guidelines realistic in terms of just the industry being able to retool, uh, you know, in a, a relatively short period of time to to produce all those EVs? Are all the, is all the related infrastructure going to be in place in that time frame? Um, you know, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. I think if we look past that sort of magical 2032 number that's floating in space right now, though. I think we all agree that in time, uh, you know, most of us are, will all eventually be driving EVs, and there'll be a lot of inf infrastructure that's required to support that. Um, so, in time, yes, the the demand for copper is going to be, you know, significant. Um, to put it in context, you know, right now the copper markets around rough numbers, twenty five million tons a year supply and demand. Um, forecasts right now are are by twenty thirty, um, we're going to see an incremental. Demand from the again EV green narrative of around 20 to 25 percent additional copper is going to be required to fill the new demand, and if you extrapolate out to 2040, it's actually 50 percent. So again, people with a long-term horizon and view on copper, look out. I mean, the idea that you know, again, four-dollar copper is an aggressive number is by I think it, it's not going to hold hold its own even a few years from now, let alone 10 or 15 years from now. Stefan, as we wrap up, you've provided a very bullish case for copper, China coming back online, the build-out of EVs and the EV infrastructure in the U.S., potential demand coming out of the U.S. because of changing government policies toward gas-powered cars. If there was one potential negative to the copper price, what would it be? Sure. I mean, I think fundamentally it's just a, a Chinese economy that maybe doesn't ramp up as quickly as people are anticipating and or offset or or, 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 or furthered by a, a deeper US recession. Um, you know, there's a few other underlying factors, like I mentioned, you know, just EV adoption in the States and an ability to actually build that infrastructure in a timely manner. Um, if it takes a bit longer, obviously that slows down the the rate at which we need more copper. Um, and, and then also, you know, there's other factors too, things like don't ever forget about scrap. Scrap is a significant component or can be a significant component of the supply chain in the copper equation. And especially as copper prices move higher, we see more scrap becoming available. Now, there is an ultimate ceiling to that as well. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to need a lot more copper than the current mines and scrap market can supply. But scrap does factor into that equation as well. Well, Stefan, that was a great overview of copper valuations and where you see the copper price going. And I want to thank you for making time for us today. For sure. Anytime. Thanks very much. Did you know we're now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? So now you can listen to us on Spotify or Apple and listen and learn when you're stuck in traffic on the 401 in Toronto, the I-95 in New York, or the I-5 in LA. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
Irfan, thank you very much for joining us today. Horizon Copper is a relatively new company. It was spun out of Sandstorm Gold. And why don't we just start right there? Why were these copper assets spun out into a separate entity? Yeah, these were non-core assets for uh, Sandstorm. They weren't pure stream royalty. Um, and so they were vended off to Horizon. And the idea was creating a strategic partner that would go and acquire and capitalize on the energy transition that's happening. And so Horizon is going to be acquiring copper interests and Sandstorm is going to be helping finance those acquisitions by taking a portion of the precious metals. The beauty of copper assets are is they usually come with precious metals. So in the future, you'll see Horizon acquiring these copper interests with precious metals and using the low form cost of capital to help finance them. And so that allowed Horizon to come out of the gate with three world-class assets, one of them cash flowing in Antimina and two development assets that Horizon doesn't have to go raise equity capital for in order to move forward. Plus, the way the nature of these assets were brought into place, you've got this enterprise value that is large, but the equity component of the enterprise value is small. So you've got tremendous torque. And that torque is very appealing, especially if you believe in the long-term price of copper and the play. And you've got a friendly terms under the leverage with respect to, you know, no financial covenants, the negative yield on the debt. You know, you can pay back the debt at Horizon's option, subject to Sandstorm not owning more than 34% of it at higher equity prices. And you've got this multi-billion dollar funding partner in Horizon in uh, Sandstorm to help move Horizon forward. So that's the backstory of what uh, the relationship between Sandstorm and Horizon is. A sandstorm plans on being a long-term strategic holder of that equity going forward. And another advantage of having Sandstorm Gold as a partner is the large technical team and the corporate development team. Maybe you can just expand on this. How many members are on that team and how many deals would they look at in any given year? Yeah, one of the things that is critical in terms of uh, scouring and um, putting placeholders on assets is being the first to identify a lot of those assets or structured deals. And so that's why Sandstorm created what we consider one of the best technical teams out there, but it's also the largest corporate development team and group. And so their job is essentially scouring the planet and looking for assets that we can put in the portfolio. And Sandstorm over the years, I've been you know involved with Sandstorm for over a decade now. They look at in some years over a hundred transactions in one year alone. And so the, one of the first companies to see assets, where they're coming down the pipeline and acquire them quickly. That's why Horizon was able to get these world-class assets because of the transactions that Sandstorm did many years ago when no one was paying attention to a lot of these assets. Erfan, that's a good overview of Horizon Copper and its formation. Why don't we look at Horizon's portfolio of assets beginning with Antimina, which is a cash-flowing asset and it's the third largest copper mine in the world. It's a great cornerstone asset to hold. How were you able to secure this asset? Yeah, Antimina, people are quite familiar with the mine. It's the third largest copper mine in the world on a, a copper equivalent basis. It's um, one of those bucket list mines for uh, uh, mining engineers and geologists to visit. So we're really excited to have it in our portfolio. Uh, we acquired it um, through the acquisition of a company called Basecore, which was with Ontario Teachers Pension Fund and uh, Glencore. The crown jewel of that portfolio was this Antimina royalty. It's a royalty that not many people are familiar with. Certainly they're familiar with the mine itself, but this royalty has cash flowed, you know, 
tens of millions of dollars over many years. Um, and we're really excited to have it in the portfolio. And did you and your team go to site to conduct due diligence on this asset? That's right. You know, we were fortunate enough to uh, go down to Peru, visit with the the management team that operates it, uh, talk about their technical vision, their planning over many decades. And it's one of those assets that, you know, when you actually go and visit it, you see the size, the scale, and you see the support in the community as well. And it's the only um, technical asset that we've seen where they truly have planned over multi-generations. So this is an asset that we believe will be cash-flowing for many decades to come. And so it's one where, you know, Sandstorm was able to go use its balance sheet to help Horizon acquire it. And uh, we're really excited to have it in our portfolio. And so how much does this asset cash flow annually and what does it bring to Horizon? And can the number change based on production or the copper price? Yeah. You know, this is going to have chunky cash flows for many years to come. Historically, it's had chunky cash flows. Sandstrom, uh, as part of the transaction, retains a silver stream on the silver coming from it, 1.66% of the silver. The royalty is 1.66% of all production coming from Antamina. And so when you strip out the cash flows going to Sandstorm, this NPI royalty would have historically cash flowed, you know, $10 million, even on commodity prices over the last few years, below $3 copper. And when you look at, you know, a couple of years ago when copper went on a run, um, that asset would have castled over $20 million U.S. to Verizon shareholders. Now we anticipate um, that there'll be variability in those cash flows. So in our projections, we put just over $10 million U.S. to Verizon shareholders. But you can certainly see that when commodity prices run and other factors are in play, that this can provide very chunky cash flows to Verizon shareholders. Another top-tier copper mine is Rio Tinto's Oyutogoi mine, which is located in Mongolia. And when in full production, it will be one of the world's largest copper mines. And Horizon has an indirect interest in this mine through an ownership of Entree Resources. Can you just explain this relationship with Entree and what it means to Horizon? Um, so we own 25% of a company called Entree Resources. They trade on the TSX. And what they have is they have a finance carried interest on a portion of the Oyu Tolgoi ground, which, you know, when you look at how incredible that asset is, we're really excited to have it in our portfolio, especially since Rio Tinto, the operator of that asset, has just uh, begun underground mining. So they're in the development or on the Hugo North extension, which is essentially what um, uh, we own through our indirect interest and in entree. And so this won't be cash flowing for many years out, but when it starts cash flowing, the amount of cash flow coming back to Verizon shareholders via 25% is going to be tremendous. And it'll cash flow for many decades to come. And so we're really excited to have not only, you know, the third largest copper mine in the world, but now the fourth largest copper mine in the world in our portfolio. And remind me, how much of Entree Resources does Rio Tinto own? Rio Tinto is the other large shareholder of Entree Resources. They own about 16%. So between us, we're the two largest shareholders in that company. And and uh, we both believe in the, the long-term growth of uh, that asset on the Yugo North extension, how valuable it can be. And I'm sorry, you might have mentioned this, but what's the timeline associated with them mining that part of the mine? So they're in underground development ore right now. Um, and you can see that they're very close to actually going to the Hugo North extension ground, but it'll be, 
you know, many, many years before those cash flows are attributable back to entree share. So it's a more of a long-term asset within our portfolio and our development pipeline. So if you look at our portfolio, you've got Antimeda, which is cash flowing right away. You've got Hot Modern, which is another development asset, which will be cash flowing in a few years' time. And then the OU total interest is years after that. So you just mentioned Hot Modern, and I want to discuss this now. That's a copper gold project in Turkey. And you recently announced that SSR Mining has acquired an operating interest in this project. Take us through the agreement with SSR Mining and what it means for Horizon. Yeah, this is tremendous news for Horizon shareholders because now what you have is an asset that as Horizon, we think is incredible, truly world class. But now what you have is SSR Mining coming in where they have in-country you know, expertise, development teams, and they've demonstrated that they're a world-class mining operator and the developed mines, in particular, mines in Turkey. So on the Tripler mine, which is the one they most recently developed and operated, it had tremendous success. And that development team that pushed the Tripler project forward is now being transitioned to the Hot Modern team and the Hot Modern project. So that's, that's a wonderful news for Verizon shareholders to have not only SSR validate that project, but also have their technical teams move it forward. Now they're going to assume the project financing that's going to undergo at Hot Modded. And for those who aren't familiar with our interest, this is this world-class asset that we own 30% of in Turkey. Um, it's uh, going to be project finance, about 65% debt, 35% equity. And so SSR Mining is moving through the project financing and taking over that, that portion of it based on the work that our other uh, mining partner, Lydia Mid and Chilik, had completed or had progressed. And now what you have is um, a really troll world-class asset. And as Horizon shareholders, you're sitting at owning 30% with $40 million of working capital sitting on our balance sheet, which is earmarked for our equity check with respect to the equity component of that project financing. So it's a very unique story where you look at Horizon, you say, okay, yes, Antimeda cash flowing, your development assets in hot modern, you have the equity check available to yourself to move that project forward. You also have lines of credit available with Sandstorm in case or CapEx overruns. And then your Oyutolo interest that you have is a finance carried interest. So it's one of those stories where you've got this incredible portfolio, but you don't have to technically raise equity in the future to move these projects forward. Erfan, you have one cash flowing asset in Antimeda and you have two developing assets which are still a few years away from cash flowing. Would you consider buying another cash flowing asset? Absolutely. You know, we're really excited to add to the portfolio, become a, a consolidator of copper interests all over the world and build that portfolio and create that diversification benefit. Uh, I know Sandstorm corporate development team is scouring the planet for those interests and hopefully we'll add another one uh, over the next 24 months. You've already touched on this, but Horizon is a unique copper plane that it holds passive interest through royalties and also minority stakes in various copper assets. But maybe you can just summarize again, what are the benefits of this model to investors? Yeah, I'm a big believer in diversification. And by adding more assets to portfolio, you can get greater diversification. And you can see the benefit with our existing portfolio. You've got three world-class assets. Now, 
as you scour the planet looking for more copper plates, you add different geographic um, uh, assets, different nature of deposits, and you build this portfolio and this diversification starts to take hold. And we saw that happen in other royalty companies where they actually add an asset, you get expiration upside, and you're not too sure exactly which one of your assets is going to outperform based on the metrics you put in. But based on getting the, the formula right of finding quality assets with expiration upside, you can eventually get this portfolio uh, benefit. And so that's the benefit of adding number of different passive interests into the portfolio. And from a valuation point of view, because Horizon Copper is not going to be a pure play royalty play because you also will own minority interest in various assets, but how should an investor value Horizon Copper? Yeah, certainly when you look at our portfolio today, very uh, our most material asset is Antimina, which is a royalty. You've got these other assets that are quasi-royalty, and so people see the benefit of it. But I always look at where the cash coming out of those assets. And so when you look at Horizon, you see that uh, the yield on a free sustaining cash flow basis, this is essentially the cash that the business is creating without you having to reinvest it into your project to continue that cash flow. Um, as opposed to mining companies where you get cash flow and operating cash flow, but then you got to go invest it back into the business just to keep that asset alive. And so that free cash flow coming from Antamina is quite significant and it screens incredibly well. But what you have when you look at other copper companies is this value trap of, well, it might have a nice cash yield, but they don't have growth built in. So eventually that cash disappears and your business is shrinking over time unless you go buy new assets and you go and raise equity, acquire those, those assets, or you move certain projects forward. What's unique about Horizon is not only you get that free cash flow coming today, that has a very attractive, you know, a sustaining cash flow yield, but you have a portfolio built in via hot modded and Oyutulgoy, where Horizon doesn't need to go raise equity to move those development assets forward. So you've got this tremendous growth built in in your portfolio. And so that's very unique to have that cash flowing asset, to have a development portfolio that you don't have to go raise additional equity capital to move it forward. So it screens well in terms of not only significant growth, but significant cash flow yield. And I think we're an outlier uh, when you combine those two together. Perfan, as we wrap up, can you summarize for investors why they should consider Horizon as an investment and what catalyst they can expect in the coming months from Horizon Copper? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. You know, I don't think there's another copper play out there um, when you look below $500 million, where you've got three world-class assets coming out of the gate. You've got a cash-flowing asset in Antamina uh, that is truly world-class, and you've got two development assets that you know you don't have to go raise equity capital forward to move forward because Verizon has $40 million U.S. working capital that's earmarked for the equity component of the hot modern uh, uh, development and build. You've got the world's best operating partners on all of those projects from, you know, Glencore, BHP to Rio Tinto, and now SSR mining with Hot Modern. So you've got this unique portfolio uh, and you've got tremendous torque and leverage. The amount of leverage um, that you have with Horizon Copper is incredible in the sense that, you know, if there's a 10% increase in your enterprise value, you get over 40% return to equity holders. And that 
leverage normally would scare me because I'm a finance person usually comes with covenants and interest rates and all these various kind of like bells and whistles that can, you know, be scary for equity holders. But the leverage that uh, exists in um, our enterprise value is on friendly terms, you know, negative yield. Some of it's non-interest bearing. There aren't any financial coverage. You can pay back in equity. And then the last thing is you've got this long-term partner sandstorm where it'll help Horizon finance future acquisitions. And that's not a small partner. That's a multi-billion dollar uh, entity. So when you put that all together, I think there isn't another copper play out there that has those components together. Well, friend, that was a great introduction to Horizon Copper. And I want to thank you for sharing the story with us today. And we look forward to future updates. Thanks, Jimmy. Real pleasure. Hi, Claudia. Thank you very much for joining us today. Kodiak Copper is part of the Discovery Group of Companies. And before we do the deep dive on Kodiak Copper, why don't we first start with a brief overview of Discovery Group and how they help companies that they are involved in. The Discovery Group is a loose alliance of companies. We all work out of the same office. It's a really great group of people. And it's I'm very happy to be part of a strong, credible group with Kodiak. It's just a lot of synergies in terms of costs, but more importantly, a lot of support and contacts, technical expertise. And from an investor's perspective, it also just gives people some confidence that the companies in the group are good companies, well-run companies, because the Discovery Group has been around for many years has been very successful, 2.6 billion of exits in the last couple of years. And not everybody gets invited to the group. So yeah, I really value being part of the discovery group with Kodiak. It makes us a stronger company. And as you mentioned, they've had many successes, but one of their biggest ones was Great Bear. And why don't you just touch on that? That obviously was a fantastic success um, of Chris Taylor, who was the founder of Great Bear and also of Kodiak. He's also Kodiak's chairman. And he really took Great Bear from the very beginning to $2 billion in shareholder values last year. One of the big discoveries, biggest discoveries in the last couple of years, if not decades. So important success for Chris and Kodiak in many ways is a bit of a similar story in that just like Great Bear, Chris took a project with our main project, MPD, 
that lots of people had looked at in the past and didn't really rate or couldn't make it work. And then Chris took a new and different approach. And yeah, I mean, Great Bear was a fantastic success. And with Kodiak, we also made a discovery right in our maiden drill program. And I'm curious, is the discovery group of companies more focused on gold or copper? It's a mix of different commodities, actually, that the the eight companies that are currently in the group covering. So there's gold, there's copper, there's also uranium, there's a royalty company. So it's really a mix of, of um, a variety of different metals and commodities. So that's a good overview of the Discovery Group. Kodiak's flagship property is called MPD, which is located in southern British Columbia, and it's surrounded by some of Canada's largest copper mines. Can you just provide us an overview of these copper producers that are in that surrounding area? As is that MPD is very much in an established mining district. That's an important advantage. It really lowers our exploration costs. And also in the future, it will be a big difference maker when it comes to building and operating a mine. There are a number of big copper mines in the vicinity, in addition to smaller mines, exploration projects. We are between two copper mines. We have Copper Mountain to our south, about 20 or so kilometers. That's a mine that's very geologically similar to what we see at MPD. And then to our north, about 40 or 50 kilometers, is another big copper mine by Tech, operated by Tech, that's Highland Valley. So, yeah, it's really mining territory where we are. And you touched on this earlier, but many people have looked at MPD before, but you and your team have taken a different approach. Maybe you can just provide a little more context to this approach and how it's different from previous explorers. Yep. There are two important points that I would highlight why we were successful and previous explorers weren't. Firstly, we were able to acquire a consolidated land package and most of or all of the historic exploration, which took place by a variety of different operators over a span of decades, all of this work was always on smaller land packages. And for a porphyry, which is all about size, the fact that we were able to acquire the consolidated package really was the first step to make this a success because we were able to put in place a comprehensive exploration strategy. And then another sort of aspect of our work where we just took a different approach is that we drilled deeper than the historic drilling. The historic drilling on average, the average historic hole was 120 meters in, in length. So very shallow drilling. And Chris Taylor's interpretation was that this shallow drilling simply didn't reach the higher grade zones. So we drilled down to between seven and 800 meters in our maiden drill program and it worked right away. As I said, we made the discovery in the Maiden Drill Program. So I want to move on now and discuss the upcoming drilling season. But before we do that, why don't you provide us with some background on last year's drilling program so we have a foundation on what you're going to do this year? We were focused until now primarily on the gate zone with our drilling, where we made our initial high-grade discovery. 
and have since the discovery drilled almost 50,000 meters. Last year, we drilled 26,000 meters, and we're very successful in extending the high-grade mineralization at gate, which is now over about a kilometer in strike, down to a depth of 950 meters and about a width of 350 meters. So quite a sizable amount of mineralization that we see at, at gate. We're certainly very pleased with how we were able to delineate um, quite a significant amount of mineralization there. And last year, as I said, 26,000 meters, the majority of the drilling was at gate and then also at some targets in the uh, vicinity of gate. And now this year, we uh, will also drill, um, have a similar size drill program planned, but very importantly, we'll take the approach that brought success at gate and now test multiple other targets on the property. Claudia, last year, a lot of your focus was on the gate zone and you drilled 26,000 meters. This year, you're going to drill 25,000 meters. Maybe you can tell us a little more about what targets you're going to focus on this year. Yes, this year will be an exciting year because we essentially take the approach that brought us the discovery success at gate and test four or five other targets. Essentially, those targets are just like gate, historically drilled with shallow mineralization already drilled by previous operators, copper and gold. And we will test those targets deeper. And the aim essentially is to find more high-grade zones, one or several, and repeat what we did at gate. So it's a very exciting year. We have four priority targets or five. We will drill um, in the southern part of our property at the south zone, the west zone, and 1516 is also on the priority list. And then in the northern part of our property at the man zone. And then we take it from there. And does most of the drilling happen during the summer months or can you drill all year round? You can very much work all year round where we are. We are in southern British Columbia, so the weather is not particularly cold and not very much snowfall. What we tend to do is do most of our drilling in the summer when you get best productivity and then also drill at the bit of a slower pace in, pace in spring and autumn. And then when we have the worst weather in January, February, we generally pause the drilling and do all the other work. I'm sure the summers must be beautiful in southern BC. They certainly are. And Claudia, in addition to drilling, will you do any other work where you do any geochem work or trenching? Yes. Like in the previous years, we have, again, a sizable sampling program um, planned and also a geophysical program. We will do 3D IP, uh, which we have done in the past and which is very helpful for our drill targeting. Claudia, let's move on now and discuss your balance sheet. You recently did a raise. Maybe you can just touch on that and what the proceeds will be used for and what your cash position is. Yes, we just closed a financing of $8.5 million and have now $12 million in the treasury and are fully funded for the year for all of our work that we have planned, which is fantastic. So very good place to be. And Claudia, one of your shareholders is Tech Resources. I'm curious how that relationship started and, and what brought them in. 
tech investors right after our initial discovery at the gate zone that was in late 2020 and they invested at the time 8 million and took a 9.9% share they have continued to invest in our financings thing since and have been a very supportive shareholder it's really great to have them in the board and besides capital i'm sure they offer a lot of other services well, there, there is no formal um, technical committee or anything like that, but um, we work together informally and they've uh, been to site a number of times. And that's obviously great to have their geologists um, on site and, and to get their insights and input. And tech has also helped us in, in multiple other ways with our safety systems, with indigenous relations. They've given us a lot of advice and, and support. And how do the grades at the gate zone compare to what might be found at Highland Valley or Copper Mountain? That's a good question. When we came out with our discovery hole at the gate zone, that was a long hole of more than 500 meters of mineralization of 0.76% copper equivalent. And that was roughly two or three times the grade of the neighboring mines. That's why the initial discovering generated a lot of excitement. And generally what we see at gate is higher grade mineralization that's significantly higher than what's mined next door. And we were able to delineate quite a significant amount of it. And that's very important. A porphyry system, a large porphyry system like what we see at, at MPD, always has a lot of lower grade mineralization and then some higher grade porphyry centers. And those are very important for future economics. And so, yeah, we were fortunate to hit a nice, sizable, high grade porphyry center with gate right at the start. And because Tech is a shareholder, you work closely with them. You also spent 10 years working at Rio Tinto. So you have a good idea of what these large mining companies are looking for before they invest. Maybe you can just expand on this. Well, certainly the um, reason Tech came in is that they see the potential for this project to be big and sizable. MPD has a very big footprint. That's why we were initially attracted to us, because that shows it has potential to be a big system. And um, that's also what attracted Tech. Tech is a big multinational company. They're not interested in small projects. Um, they liked what they see in terms of size potential. And I think that's also why the market reacted very positively when they invested, because it was obviously a big vote of confidence. So you bring up a very interesting point, and I'm just curious, is your intention to build or develop a resource, or will you continue to drill and build out the size and scale? That's a good question and a strategic choice for Kodiak. We could, in theory, go and start working on a resource now. Many junior companies go and uh, define resources relatively early, which then are by definition smaller. Or the alternative strategy is to keep drilling and really go for, for size. And that's what we're doing. That's how we believe we can generate most value for our shareholders. Gate is really 
only one target of several ones that have equally as much discovery potential. The only reason why we started drilling at gate was one particular historic hole that piqued our interest. And we don't simply don't know yet whether gate is the biggest, the highest grade porphyry center on the property. There might be others that are better. And that's what we're going to find out this year. And that's what our strategy is to really go for size and scale and test these other targets with the aim to find more high-grade profit centers. So you're, you and Chris Taylor are basically going to take the same approach that he took at Great Bear Resources. They just focused on size and building it out before they went ahead and did a resource. That's very, very well said. Yes, it's similar strategy. Claudia, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from Kodiak Copper in the coming months? Look, news flow for us is obviously the drill results. The drill has started turning and um, we expect the next batch of results reasonably soon. And then we'll have in the summer and all throughout the years, batches of drill results from um, these new targets that we're testing. Claudia, that was a great overview of Kodiak Copper, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today, and good luck on the upcoming drilling season. Thank you. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the conference. Did you know that 80% of our viewers are not subscribers to our channel? So that probably means you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hi, Greg. Thank you very much for joining us today. Metallic Minerals recently entered into a strategic arrangement with Newcrest Mining on the La Plata project in Colorado. And before we discuss the terms of the investment, provide us with the backstory on how Newcrest got involved. When did you first start speaking to them and what were the circumstances that brought Newcrest in? Jimmy, it's great to be back uh, in one of your conferences. Um, it's an exciting development with the announcement uh, of Newcrest's uh, strategic equity investment into metallic minerals. Uh, I think that the, the key backstory here, uh, the La Plata project is one that's been a bit off the radar screen. It was discovered in the 1950s by Rio Tinto, explored through the 60s and then 70s by Freeport. Really hasn't seen modern exploration until metallic minerals involvement picked it up in late 2019. First exploration programs in 2020, 21, and 22. And we had a major discovery hole that we drilled and announced uh, in February of 23, just ahead of the PDAC conference. Um, that was one of the biggest intercepts in copper gold uh, in the industry, certainly in North America in the last couple of years, and the biggest hit ever at La Plata. It garnered a lot of attention. We had a core shack exhibit uh, with the core on display at PDAC and had all the majors. Uh, taking a look because a U.S.-based copper gold porphyry near a highway, all the infrastructure in place in an existing mining district is is really you know they're fairly scarce assets. We can we can say uh, Newcrest was one of the first to really recognize the potential, and particularly because of their expertise in this kind of 
high precious metals rich porphyry system, which they have a, a suite of them in their portfolio, including their Cadia Ridgeway uh, deposit, their Wafi Gopu in PNG, and their Red Chris deposit in British Columbia. And so these guys really have key expertise in this type of geology, as well as in uh, bulk tonnage block cave mining, which is the configuration we're likely looking at at the La Plata project. Greg, that was a great overview. You threw out a lot of information there, and I just want to backtrack a little bit. So you released the drilling result from this one hole in February. You met up with the Newcrest team at PDAC in the month of March. And maybe you can just give us some details about that hole. What was it specifically that drew their attention? Yeah, so we we drilled two big holes to basically test um, the expansion potential of the resource. We delivered a resource at La Plata in 2022, which was just under a billion pounds equivalent, so 900 million pounds of copper and 15 million ounces of silver, open in really all directions. So we drilled a hole starting its surface 900 meters to the south, looking to see if the higher grade zone would extend that way. Continuous porphyry mineralization from surface, but lower grade telling us we're kind of on the edge of the system on the south, remains open to the west. Uh, but we then drilled another hole to the north, 816 meters uh, from surface, continuous uh, porphyry style mineralization, one of the highest grade hits ever hit uh, at La Plana. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the best in the industry. So uh, 0.41% recovered equivalent top to bottom, but the last 500 meters, quite spectacular grades, it ended in 5% copper, um, 47 grams silver, and 11 grams of gold plus platinum and palladium. So truly spectacular results. Unfortunately, we lost the hole because of uh, mechanical problems. Uh, target depth was 1,000 meters. So we don't even know how deep that zone goes. Uh, so clearly one of the first things we want to do is to get in and continue to test the width of that higher grade zone and to step out away from that intercept, which was the last drill hole ever drilled on the eastern end of the deposit. So quite an exciting development. Greg, you mentioned that the resource came out in early 2022. You've done a lot of drilling since then. Are you going to work on another updated resource? Yeah, Jimmy, we've already engaged SGS on the back of these um, exciting results that we uh, put out earlier this year in 2023. So with that data, SGS is now working on the modeling to put out an incremental update. We expect that to be out here uh, in the next month or two. Uh, that new model will form the basis for our exploration efforts in 2023 to offset and uh, look to grow that resource estimate. One of the exciting opportunities that we'll be looking uh, towards in future resource updates is that the historic drilling only analyzed for copper and silver. And so with our recent drilling, we recognize a very significant gold plus platinum and palladium component, and that will get brought in through our drilling into uh, future updated resources as we get enough holes in the system to allow for estimation on those metals. So that's going to be an opportunity to increase the overall grade of the deposit and the overall value, in addition to growing the size of the resource by, by step out. Greg, I have spoken with many other junior mining companies who also have strategic investments with much larger mining companies. And what really surprises me about the deal that you've entered into with Newcrest is how fast it happened. And I'm just curious, what was it specifically that created this sense of urgency on the part of Newcrest? Why did they want to get involved so fast? 
Well, I think Newcrest, you know, they recognize there was interest by a number of majors, but I think they have unique experience in these precious metal rich porphyry systems like their Cadia Ridgeway deposit uh, and Brent Chris is another example. And so, you know, they have unique perspective, I think, on the potential for a system like La Plata. So they very quickly uh, entered into uh, uh, NDA on the project, got their teams out to site to do the technical review, and very rapidly things came together. I think recognizing the value, and I think this kind of precious metal-rich copper system uh, is, is a real focus for Newcrest, and really all the pieces fit together now. I think in particular, because of their expertise in this kind of copper gold system, you know, Newcrest is a, a, really a particularly good fit for the La Plata project working with metallic minerals. Uh, Newcrest has stated that their objective is to increase their cash flow from copper from 25% of, of revenue today to over 50%, and that they have a focus on adding assets in the U.S. So it's a, it's a great fit uh, overall uh, for Newcrest, and particularly they bring expertise in block cave bulk tonnage underground mining, which is the methodology we'd be looking at for this project as well. So, you know, as we start to put together a technical committee uh, and look down at, you know, we're going to be benefiting not only from the cash that they've put forward in this investment to drive the next exploration program, but the deep technical experience they have in this kind of geologic system, as well as in this style of, of mining. And so it really just rounds out why why Newcrest is such a great fit for us on this project. And Greg, you brought up a very interesting point. I didn't realize 25% of Newcrest uh, production comes from copper, but this is one thing we keep hearing, not only from copper companies, but gold companies. Everyone's looking for copper. Is this one of the reasons why Newmont wants to acquire Newcrest for their copper exposure? Absolutely. I mean, in, if you look at these precious metal, large precious metal companies, you know, they recognize that these, these copper gold systems have uh, oftentimes, mine lives that are measured in multiple decades, um, tremendous cash flow generation, and they come with precious metals uh, in the form of, of credits. And so it's a great fit for these bigger companies. You know, the average mine life for a gold deposit is 10 years, but these porphyry systems often have mine lives measured 20, 30, 40, 50 years or longer. And so these are a great just cornerstone asset for these majors. And particularly where it's not just copper, but copper that's coming along with precious metals like silver, gold, and, and platinum group elements. Greg, that's a good overview of how Newcrest got involved. Now, I want to examine the Newcrest deal in more detail. Can you just go through the exact terms of the deal? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a strategic equity investment. So they are becoming a shareholder of metallic minerals. This initial uh, uh, investment takes them to a 9.5% equity interest. That brings in about $6.3 million, which really has us funded through the next major milestones and expiration this year. Uh, they have a uh, three-quarters warrant, which would allow them to put another $6.5 million into the company if they exercise that warrant. And that would you know, potentially fund the next round of work. So it really positions us for uh, a one-two punch here to be able to get in and offset these discovery holes and then to continue to grow uh, the resource and see particularly where this high-grade resource you know, ends up taking us. And does Newcrest get any sort of board representation or technical committee? 
Yeah, so Newcrest uh, has a right once they exercise their warrant and go above 13% to be able to nominate uh, a director to our board of directors. We will be forming a technical committee uh, right away, uh, and that will be part of working on the project and, and setting the, the budget and the objectives. And, you know, we're excited about that because, as I said earlier, it's not just that they're bringing funding. These guys bring special technical expertise in this kind of precious metal rich porphyry system that will be a great asset for the project, along with understanding the economics of mining when you're looking at bulk tonnage underground mining. And Greg, can other participants or mining companies still get involved in spite of this deal? Absolutely. I mean, most analysts don't consider anything below a 19.9 to be a blocking position. So 9.5%, um, they're not an insider to start with. At, if they exercise the warrants, they'll have you know one board uh, member, uh, but certainly there's room for others if that was you know appropriate. And certainly this is the kind of asset in this location that could be of interest to perhaps other producing companies, but also other strategics such as offtake uh, smelters of other groups that we've seen investing in these kind of projects, you know, in North America recently. Greg, what are the next steps now? We've got the upcoming drilling season fast approaching. What are you and Newcrest going to do? Yeah, so we, our team's been working on the follow-up drill campaign. I mean, clearly it's going to be focused on offsetting this discovery hole and then stepping out a way to really determine how wide is that higher grade interval. It starts right at surface. You know, the bottom 500 meters was, you know, quite spectacular but we don't know how wide that zone is. So drilling through that uh, zone to determine the width and then starting to offset it. Uh, in addition, we'll be looking to follow up on geophysics and bringing in uh, some you know computer technology, machine learning uh, technology that we're developing uh, along with uh, some industry partners. We've got the USGS uh, who's identified uh, the district as a potential critical minerals uh, resource region. They're going to be doing some geophysical surveys and other work. So it's going to be an exciting program at La Plata this year in terms of, you know, continuing to not only understand how big is the resource, but undertaking some of these surveys to uh, assess some of the other targets. We've identified as many as 16 other potential porphyry targets on the property. This is the first time ever the La Plata district's been consolidated under one owner. These are areas that Rio Tinto and Freeport never had under control. So uh, a number of really exciting targets to be tested. Uh, so it's going to be uh, a series of news events as we undertake drilling and and milestones and catalysts ahead. And I'm sorry, how many rings will you have and how many holes do you have planned? So we'll start out with a 5,000 meter drill program. They'll start with one drill and as appropriate, we can add, you know, uh, a second or a third. Uh, you know, right now we're drilling in a fairly concentrated area so we can get a lot done with a single uh, rig, um, and we'll really assess when it makes sense to, to start to expand beyond that to start with. Greg, as we wrap up, you've already provided a lot of information related to the Newcrest investment, but can you summarize what news flow investors can expect in the coming months from Metallic Minerals? Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to uh, you know the start of drilling, uh, which will be happening here fairly soon at La Plata, uh, we've also got the updated resource that will take in those results from 2022 that we announced in February. Uh, and that expanded resource will put out. Um, in addition, we've got uh, a pending inaugural resource and our keen old silver project, which is next door to Hecla Mining, highest grade 
uh, producing silver uh, asset for Hecla. And lastly, we've got the start of potential first production on our royalty portfolio in the Klondike region of the Yukon uh, that could be starting to bring in cash flow. So it's going to be an exciting year in 2023 for metallic mineral shareholders. Well, that was a great update and a great overview of the Newcrest investment and good luck on the upcoming drilling program. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Glad to be here with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Western Copper recently announced its newest strategic investor in Mitsubishi Materials. And before we discuss Mitsubishi's involvement, Rio Tinto is also a shareholder. And why don't we just provide a brief background for those viewers who might not be familiar with that deal. When did they get involved and what were the terms of the Rio Tinto deal? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, you know, Jimmy, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you know, it, it's it's great to be back and 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 chatting with you. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to kick off, uh, let's maybe just remind everyone, as as you said, about the uh, Rio Tinto investment, and you know, the Rio Tinto investment really it it started in 2020. Um, Rio signed a confidentiality agreement, did some initial diligence on on the project, and and you know, they came to us and said. You know, Paul. Let's uh, you know, we we like the project. We want to do something, you know. And there was some discussion back and forth, and 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 what we ended up with was what we actually signed, which was this. It's it's a strategic investment, but you know, every one of these strategic investments has a goal, and so the goal of this Rio Tinto uh, strategic investment was to enable them to do some additional dil- diligence on the project. You know, with the eye that after that diligence, we could talk about, you know, something much more serious, like, you know, maybe them buying the project and, you know, we'll, we'll see. So, um, so we, we signed the, uh, the, uh, investor rights agreement and, and, uh, they made that investment 26, uh, $25.6 million gives them about 8% of the outstanding shares. Uh, we signed that, um, mid May. Uh, 2021, so it's it's about two years old at this point in time, um, and of course the money was great, but you know with that came some key rights, and the key rights really are um, the establishment of a technical committee which they sit on, and the right of a, to have a board observer which you know um, allows them to make sure that you know you know what we're doing at the board level is is uh, consistent with what they want to do. But really, those rights were around executing the scope of work, and that scope of work it was you know double checking the resource, redoing the metallurgy, lots of stuff on First Nation engagement. We spent you know a couple of days going over the tailings facility, et cetera, et cetera. 
all of that work, all of the technical work is essentially done, you know, it finished really at the end of last year. And so now, you know, the project really is sitting internal within Rio Tinto. There, I talk to them on a, you know, almost weekly basis. And I'm like, yeah, where are you guys? What's going on? And they're, well, we're dotting I's and crossing T's and, you know, it's a big company, right? So they're doing lots of analysis of, of what it all means. But, um, you know, we've got this deadline of, uh, November 28th, where, you know, the current investor rates agreement will expire. So, you know, the idea is that, you know, well, well before that date comes that, you know, we need to sit down and talk about what's next. So expect to be doing that here relatively shortly. So that's a good overview of the Rio Tinto involvement. Now I want to discuss Mitsubishi materials. Can you provide the backstory on how they got involved? Yeah, yeah, no. And so, I mean, the backstory on, on Rio Tinto, or sorry, on Mitsubishi, I mean, after we signed that deal with Rio Tinto, you know, we went out, we hired some advisors and we said, you know, very happy to have Rio Tinto here. You know, it's, are there other groups out there? So last year we signed about 10 confidentiality agreements. We had six different groups up to site. One of those groups was Mitsubishi. And, you know, they, they looked at the project and, you know, they, they had publicly come out and said, look, we're looking to invest in copper projects. Um, you know, copper development projects, just not not only advanced and operating copper mines. Because, you know, of course, uh, you know, Rio Tinto owns and operates a number of copper mines around the world. Mitsubishi does not operate, own or operate any copper mines. However, they are a minority partner in a number of copper mines around the world. And what they're interested in is the offtake, the concentrate, because they have smelters in Japan. So, you know, we, so they came to site, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the site visit because it was the end of September and the end of September in the Yukon is, it can snow at the end of September, although it actually worked out great. We had a really good site visit, uh, spent about a week up in the Yukon, uh, you know, but with government folk as well. And, um, and then they did a very deep diligence. I mean, it was, uh, quite extensive. I mean, uh, you know, we, we got lots of questions and back and forth and, and then we got really to the end of last year and sort of the same thing, you know, Mitsubishi said, look, we love this project. We're excited that, that uh, Rio Tinto is involved, you know, what's next. And so we essentially went to them and said, well, you know, we're, we're not quite done with Rio here, but we're, we'd be happy to offer you a similar structured deal to what we have with Rio, which is, you know, you come in for, you know, a reasonable, you know, five to 10%. You know, we didn't want them to necessarily have more than Rio Tinto. Um, and, uh, at the, of, you know, as a private placement, and then we'll give you investor rights agreement and we can sort of talk about, you know, some additional work that you want to do. And so that ended up being uh, a $21 million investment, uh, which gives them 5% of the outstanding shares. And with that came in again, an investor rights agreement. So they're, they're also now on the technical committee. Um, they don't have a board observer, but they have, um, the right of first negotiation on the offtake for the period of the um, the agreement, which in this case is two years. So it's until it, we signed it in March, and so it's it valid to March 2025. Um, and then we've agreed to do some work, and you know most of the work is unsurprisingly um, focused on concentrate quality, and and really it's a bit of geomelarity, just making sure that we, you know, we've done a lot of work on on concentrate quality, but you know have we really made sure we've tested all 
the different parts of the deposit. So that's one of the things we're going to look at in some more detail here over the next couple of years with uh, with Mitsubishi. And Paul, you mentioned they came in for 5%. Why would they come in for a higher number, like 19.9%? Yeah. Well, you know, so, I mean, part, I mean, there, there's sort of two sides to this, right? So on, we didn't want them at 19.9% because we're, I mean, you know, we as a public company, but always have to be careful that we don't sort of set up a situation where we can hand control to somebody else and control is over 19.9%. But if we had Mitsubishi at 19.9% and Rio at 8%, those two could have a pretty short conversation and then suddenly, you know, be in charge of the con- of the company and have control. So it's important that we keep, you know, these strategic investments, the sum of the strategic investments, uh, less than that 19.9. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was fair to Rio for them to have necessarily more than Rio. Um, so wanted to keep them really below that you know, essentially 8% that Rio had, but then, you know, we need, they can't come in so low that it, that they have less than other shareholders since we are, you know, some of our other, um, you know, funds and that, that are shareholders, we need them to have a sizable amount in order to essentially justify giving them investor rights agreement. So yeah, I mean, 5%, we started, I think, you know, we sort of floated that out as a reasonable number and, you know, went back and forth a bit, but, uh, you know, I was settled on pretty quickly. And so now we're coming up to the drilling season. Do, does Rio Tinto or Mitsubishi have, want to do any further drilling? Do they want to do any other testing, any other sort of due diligence in the upcoming season? Like I said, Rio's is, you know, essentially from gathering more fresh data. They're, they're not asking me for anything more. Uh, with Mitsubishi, you know, we're just kicking off. So, you know, I think we're, I mean, we haven't put together the program yet, just in terms of dotting I's and crossing T's, but I anticipate that we'll be doing some drilling to, to produce MET samples to do, again, just to make sure that we have all aspects of the, the deposit covered off in terms of concentrate quality and concentrate grade. We'll certainly be doing some drilling that focuses on that this year. And you mentioned that you signed 10 CAs last year and, and six other groups came to site. Can you still bring in another strategic investor, like another serious mining company? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're having conversations with a number of groups still. I mean, it's, uh, it's a great project, right? And in Canada, good economics, good size, you know, we've, we've done good work in terms of developing uh, the relationship with the community and the First Nations and the government. Um, so there continues to be interest, you know, not in addition to the 10 signed last year, I've actually signed two this year. Um, so we'll see. I mean, um, it's it's obviously, you know, the, the front of the pack is, is Rio and Mitsubishi, where we've done their diligence, made, you know, acknowledge that the project looks very, very promising, and, you know, entered into that next phase that we've talked about. But you know, certainly uh, these other groups are 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 behind them, and and you know, at various levels of diligence and analysis as well. Well, I want to move on now and discuss the feasibility study, which came out in 2022. And one of the features that makes Western copper and gold so unique is the gold component, and also the moly component, and the resulting byproduct credits, which will significantly reduce the cost per pound. Maybe you can just touch on that. 
Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, it's it's uh, when you look at the value in the ground uh, of this deposit, it runs around forty six percent copper, thirty four percent gold, and around seventeen percent uh, molly or molybdenum. And, and you know, I don't talk about molly that much because it's it's sort of you know it's the, the smallest of the three, but. You know, Molly is is a commodity that when we did the feasibility study, we used fourteen dollars a pound, while today it's trading for thirty three dollars a pound. So it's getting getting a, a little more attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, having those those byproducts really impacts the the, the costs uh, in a positive way. And and you know, when when we talk when we look at our our projects, it's still primarily a copper project. When we actually look at the cash cost to produce. A pound of copper net of byproducts it's a negative number i mean what does that even mean um it's actually for a project like this better to look at a co-product basis and with the co-product basis it's still a dollar 54 per pound of copper and you know 799 dollars so under 800 dollars per ounce of gold and so very very robust operating costs and you know that's over the life of mine i mean if you look at this project it's really two things drive the good economics on the project. One is early high grade. I mean, the grade over the first four years is 0.65% um, copper equivalent as opposed to the 0.4 over the life of mine. That significantly drives the economics. And the other one is the strip ratio. I mean, life of mine of 0.43 to 1. I mean, over the first four years, less than half of that. I mean, very, very low strip ratio. Now these are just their innate uh, aspects of the deposit, the strip ratio and the early high grade that you know just lends this deposit to be very economically extractive. And Paul, we should also touch on the net present value and what copper price you're using. Yeah, I mean we so I mean at at uh, three sixty copper, seventeen hundred dollar gold, the project puts off a two point three billion net present value. And eighteen point one percent IRR after tax, and I mean, and and importantly for you know all of us that live in Canada and know how this works, at an eighty cent dollar, um, you know, if you put in four dollar copper and and uh, two thousand dollar gold and a seventy four cent dollar, which is what the dollar was last time I looked at it, you're looking at you know net present values of you know over five billion. Mid mid to high twenties in terms of IRR, and that's and and that's also with an updated Molly price, which, like I said, doubled. So, you know, good economics at conservative long term values and just exceptional economics. Really, when we look at the snapshot of the commodity price environment we're in today, you mentioned earlier you're not going to spend much time on exploration this year. You're sitting on forty six million dollars in cash. Yeah, um, we're not going to spend much on exploration, and and we're sitting on. Well, I mean, so we started the year with twenty three million in cash, and then we brought in uh, the twenty one million from Mitsubishi. And, and actually, this is an important thing to point out. Um, you know, when we announced the deal with Mitsubishi, Rio Tinto had the right to to top up, uh, maintain their their ownership, which they did, uh, and that brought in another two million. So. Good, good from two points. One, uh, you know, two million dollars, two million dollars. Uh, always happy to have a little more money. And also, I mean, it, it's it's just further affirmation of the continued interest for Rio Tinto in the project. But yeah, when we look, I mean, this year the focus is really on 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 getting the project into the permitting process. So 
um, you know, it is a pretty heavy lifting year, actually, we're going to, we're going to burn through, um, I mean, the, the work towards permitting is, is close to about $10 million direct on, onto the permitting work. And, you know, the goal is to get our application in front of the regulator, in front of YESA, um, early next year. And so, you know, we really got to push that hard. So that's going to be the big push. We'll have a bit of a field campaign. We're going to do some geotech work. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, we're going to do a little bit of work, you know, focusing on getting the, on the geometallurgy and getting representative samples to look at concentrates as well. I want to move on now and discuss government involvement. Both the federal government and the Yukon government have made a commitment to constructing a road to the casino project. Can you provide an update on this road? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, and you know, it's an interesting story. I mean, the, the government, the Prime Minister of Canada even showed up um, to make the announcement uh, end of 2017. And like all good government announcements, easy to announce, a little bit more difficult to execute. But, uh, you know, flash forward to um, beginning of last year and, you know, the government signs a definitive agreement with the impacted First Nations um, and that actually grants um, a construction uh, awards the construction uh, contract to actually a, a, a company with a joint venture with the First Nations. And so it's the first section of the first section. It's the first, uh, you know, I think it's the first 10, 20 kilometers, but it's a $30 million contract. But this is, you know, some real money being spent. Uh, it's called the CarMax Bypass. And it's, it's, you know, very useful because it allows all the traffic to sort of bypass the town of CarMax. And so, um, that's under construction and started last year, should be finishing up this year. Um, so it's, uh, you know, this, this, and you know, this project would not have gone forward if the casino mine, you know, wasn't a project that had the economics and the support, um, really of obviously all those levels of government, but also good support from the first nations as well. Paul, the Yukon government has also stated it would like to connect to the grid in northern British Columbia, and doing so would be a game changer for casino in terms of the economics. Can you just touch on this and what it would mean for the casino project? Yeah, no, and and you took the words out of my mouth, Jimmy. I mean, this is an absolute game changer. And it's, um, and, and I mean, just a little, I mean, this is just a really fresh, uh, well, it's not a fresh idea. I mean, it's certainly been an idea in the Yukon for actually not as many years as you think, as you'd think, but, but, you know, certainly over the past few years, but really it kicked off. Um, there's a new premier that was sworn in in January. He's really pushing it. Uh, and, and the timing it's the timing is now, because if you look at the Yukon, the Yukon right now has, they just announced last week that they're adding five more rental diesel generators. So that brings it up to 22 rental diesel generators because they're running out of power and they don't have any other options. They just keep renting these diesel generators. So, I mean, the grid itself needs a longer term solution to get green power into the Yukon. So that's point one. And point two is mining's taking off. I mean, we at Casino represent, you know, you know, one of the largest critical minerals projects in Canada. And Obviously, you're hearing of the federal government, all of these initiatives around, you know, pushing these critical minerals projects. Well, you know, this is an example of, of pushing it. And then you've got, you know, behind, you know, our projects, a bunch of other 
uh, you know, critical mineral projects that are moving forward. So it's, this is nation building, you know, this is, you know, the modern equivalent of the railway and highways and all those sort of things. It's building the grid and the, the Yukon grid and the British Columbia grid come within 760 kilometers of each other. So that's the other thing that's happened is, you know, that the Yukon grid has expanded south and the BC grid has expanded north. So it's not sort of crazy distances now. So um, it's kicking off. There's a lot of excitement about this. Um, you know, it's uh, there was actually an article on, on Friday and on, on the Yukon News, um, you know, which is the local newspaper up there. And there was one, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand. Everybody's pushing for this. You know, it's great for everyone involved. And as you said, it'll be just an absolute game changer for our project. Because, I mean, and I don't know what the power costs will be, but it'll be, I mean, in BC, industrial power rates are like four and a half cents, right? So uh, even if even if it's double that by the time it gets up to, to our mine, this will still be lower cost power than we're talking. But more importantly, the casino project, I mean, our feasibility study talks about uh, 1.2 billion tons of mill reserve. And that's a 27-year mine life. That is one-third of the overall known deposit, let alone what else can be found. So we've got a mine up there that has, you know, over 80 years of ore identified. Having that great connection just absolutely future-proofs it, you know, make sure that the copper and gold and molly and silver coming out of that are, you know, green and, you know, just establishes a great infrastructure for this mine to operate for you know the 80 years of, of material that's been identified so we're really excited about about it i mean i'm you know encouraging the government to do whatever they can do to accelerate moving forward but uh yeah i know it's it's a great development well oems have become very aggressive in the lithium sector general motors earlier this year made a 650 million dollar investment in lithium americas Two years ago, you never would have dreamt of an OEM making an investment in an upstream operation like that. And you mentioned earlier that you've signed a dozen BAs here in the past year. And I'm just wondering if you're seeing any interest from OEMs. Yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, none of those dozen uh, CAs were, were were with OEM. And I mean, the other one, uh, which you missed, was Stellantis, you know, the... the uh, parent company of Dodge, Chrysler, Fiat, uh, made a major investment in McEwen Mining in Argentina as well. So, you know, you are starting to see this actually even in the copper sector. And so it it's an exciting development. I think it's an important development. Um, the mining industry is always, always uh, undercapitalized, particularly at the exploration and development phase. I mean, this is why you have things like flow through tax credits in Canada, because if you didn't have them, you would, it would be very challenging for exploration companies to attract capital. So, you know, it's this weird disconnect where, you know, these OEMs know they need to have a secure, um, supply of, of copper and lithium and cobalt. And yet on the other end, you know, you have these, you know, well-established exploration companies with great individuals or development companies such as ourselves. Um, that you know have, have historically been undercapitalized and are not seeing that capital coming back. So I think you're going to see more and more of it. Um, and excited about that because of the capital side of things, but also excited about that about that because it will add more weight to you know actually getting some of these projects fast tracked, actually 
beginning to cut some of the bureaucratic red tape between, you know, discovering a mine, you know, engineering a mine, and then actually all the regulatory process before you're you're allowed to start construction. So, um, you know, the federal government saying good things about that. Um, you know, we had uh, the deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland talk about fast tracking uh, critical mineral projects, and so happy to see that. But you know, I think we as an industry need to keep that pressure on to to ensure that there is some discussion about fast tracking that. And of course, if you bring in car manufacturers and other, you know, heavy industry to also put that pressure on, I think we're going to maybe see something get done. Paul, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from Western Copper and Gold in the coming months? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll have a little bit of news on permitting. We'll be announcing the summer program after we, we've you know, finished meeting with Mitsubishi and Rio and, and sorted that out. Um, but really, I think the news everyone's looking for is is what's next in terms of our agreement with, with Rio Tinto. It's expiring in November. Um, you know, I will be, as I said, sitting down here hopefully shortly and and talking about what's next there. Um, so that, that's the news that everyone, including myself, is waiting for. Um, and yeah, and then, and then I'll be honest, I expect to see some good announcements on this grid interconnect actually and it'll just be from the yukon government uh you know pushing that forward and you know as we talked about that's a game changer for the project and for the territory and will have a big impact uh on on uh, our project and the economics of the project and with all those cas who knows maybe you'll announce another strategic investor exactly <laughs> those are your words not mine but uh, maybe well, Paul, that was a great update and congratulations on your newest strategic investor in Mitsubishi Materials. And we look forward to our next discussion. Once again, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, Sonia. Thank you very much for joining us today. BHP is one of the largest mining companies in the world, employing over 80,000 people in 90 locations globally. And before we discuss what exactly you do at BHP, why don't we begin with a brief overview of the core metals that BHP produces? Hi, James. Great to see you. Yes, of course. Our core metals are in the order for scale, iron ore, net coal, copper, nickel, and potash. And given that your primary metal is iron ore, approximately 57% of BHP's revenue comes from iron ore, is BHP looking to diversify its revenue base into other metals? Yes, the goal uh, is to diversify our portfolio and focus more on future-facing commodities uh, such as uh, copper, nickel, uh, and some of the other critical uh, resources uh, for the energy transition. So that's a great overview. Why don't we jump in now to what exactly you do at BHP. You head up an accelerator program called BHP Explore. Many people are familiar with the accelerator program within the tech sector, but not so much in the mining sector. So maybe you can just provide a brief 
background as to what it is and what was the impetus towards starting this division? Yes, of course. So VHP Explorer is an accelerator program that focuses on taking in early stage exploration companies, mainly IPO, some uh, pre-IPO, sorry, and some IPO company. To come into the program, uh, accelerate them uh, within a six months period uh, and getting them ready with a solid uh, financial uh, and uh, investment opportunity to actually go on the field and test it. So why BHP Explorer? So BHP Explorer came as a, a decision to expand our search space globally to look for opportunities around the world of uh, critical mineral resources such as copper and nickel, looking jurisdiction where we don't have present, learning uh, new uh, con- new geological concept uh, and building a strong partnership with the early stage exploration companies. So once again, it's like lowering the, I guess, the concentration within iron ore and focusing more on nickel, copper and other metals. We definitely wanted to expand our portfolio to, to other commodities than just uh, iron ore. And copper and nickel are, are some of the, the most important commodities for the energy transition. So we see the need to bring more uh, within the portfolio that we currently have today. And you've mentioned copper and nickel and the importance of those metals, but what about other metals like lithium, cobalt, uranium? So the first uh, the first year of BHP Explorer, uh, we decided to open up uh, mainly to copper and nickel opportunities. But as we are going forward with the next uh, Explorer 2.0 uh, that we call for application in uh, September and October, we are actually going to expand uh, the commodities uh, we will be looking at. So we will be open to other future-facing commodities such as uh, um, uranium, rare earth, lithium, cobalt, and so on. And I believe you touched on this, Sonia, but will you and your team look at private companies as well as public companies within the BHP Explorer program? Absolutely. In fact, uh, if you look at our current portfolio, we have uh, seven companies that join us on our first uh, accelerator. And uh, of the seven companies, uh, four are private and three are public. Um, we are uh, interested in both the companies, uh, both the private uh, and uh, and public. Uh, we can provide the support through the accelerator program uh, on our own spectrum. Um, we, we, are, uh, we have uh, um, internal support and external ecosystem that can both uh, help the company so that it's one person just building up the company from scratch to um, companies that have already IPO'd, but they're looking for a future partnership as well. And will you just focus on exploration companies or would you also look at something more advanced like a development company? So the mandate for Explorer is uh, on exploration. So our goal is to explore, is to expand uh, the set of opportunities that we are looking at annually on the exploration phase. From a development point of view, we do have uh, other team in our organization that uh, are focusing more uh, to more advanced opportunities as just business development. However, uh, one of the uh, the advantage of uh, um, a program like Explore is that we get to build the relationship and partnership with these new companies, which eventually will have a discovery, which will go through the development phase 
and that we, we want to build a strong relationship to become the partner of choice going forward. And with regard to jurisdiction, do you have any jurisdictional constraints or are there any countries you would not operate in? We put as jurisdiction restriction uh, any country that has been sanctioned. Uh, so those are not countries that uh, we will uh, accept application from uh, and uh, sponsor companies. But aside from that, uh, we didn't have a, a restriction. We looked uh, for com- from companies that they come from uh, pretty much around the world. And in the current portfolio, we are spanning from uh, Australia to Mongolia to Scandinavia to Botswana, North America. So it's a, quite of a mixed portfolio. And in the program's first year, you and your you and your team have chosen seven companies. Will this number increase in the ensuing years? So that's a great question. Uh, we will look at to bring in quality opportunities. Uh, it might be more than seven, but it might be less as well. So we'll be only given uh, on what we are seeing on the market. And maybe you can give us some idea what services you and your team will offer these successful candidates. So we provide uh, three types of uh, services, uh, financial, uh, operational, uh, and technical. On the financial side, uh, there is a uh, um, stipend that each company will receive, and this is consistent. They will receive uh, while they are with us in the six months program, and it's a 500,000 uh, grant that they will get. Um, they will also be able to pitch for further capital uh, to BHP at the end of uh, the six month program. That will happen uh, in the next couple of, in the next few months, once they are ready for the next phase of investment. We also offer uh, operational support. What that means, uh, it means mainly uh, supporting them in to put in contact with different uh, um, um, vendors uh, and as well as uh, ecosystem network, whether it is a whole ground uh, legal uh, uh, support, uh, uh, due diligence and so on, or whatever they need to get their operation uh, up and running in the fastest possible way. And lastly is the technical uh, support that is uh, coming uh, both from um, BHP internal advisor and experts as well as external uh, advisor and experts. And the, the bulk of the support is on technical uh, um, capability and viability. And so it's a subsurface, it's geoscience, it's engineering, is what they need uh, to make their opportunity a very solid uh, uh, business proposition. You've mentioned the importance of of growing the copper division within BHP, and I believe right now it, it represents approximately 26% of your total revenues. And given the importance of copper and electrification, how do you foresee the company will grow this? Will you do it organically or will you do it through the acquisition of assets? So let me start with the need. When we think about the energy transition, we're looking at doubling the amount of copper uh, that needs to be supplied in the market by 2030 if we wanted to achieve the 2030, 2035, 2050 goals that most countries put forward with a net zero uh, of CO2 emission. Now, to do that, uh, we know we need to find, develop and produce more copper uh, on top of the one that has been already discovered. To your question, it's not an aura between organic and inorganic, it's a hand. 
So we will need to both uh, look for uh, new opportunities, so greenfield exploration, and we do that through our exploration organization and explorer through uh, sponsoring and supporting other companies. But we're also looking at, at uh, M&A and business development opportunities that we can bring in into our portfolio and accelerate as a BHP and as a, uh, given the financial uh, Friends that we have, so we will see both organic and inorganic growth. And as a follow-up question, what's more important to BHP, grade or scale? That's a great question, and it's probably the answer is that depends. In certain in certain situation, uh, we will have a scale, uh, but maybe the grade is not at that high that I as uh, as we would like but the scale will uh, will take uh, in account for the the lower grade in other situation if we have a very high grade and the scale is not uh the one we are used to that's will be good as well because uh, we can uh, develop faster and you know a much lower cost uh, um way than in larger scale. Now, the other uh, element that is a part of the equation uh, is uh, also the, the contract uh, obligation uh, and the regulatory framework uh, and uh, the um, the royalties and so on. That's, uh, that's part as well of uh, scale versus, uh, versus grade. And a related question, does BHP care more about the short-term copper price, or is it more concerned about finding long-life assets, which will be producing in 50 or 75 years? So I think it's a little bit of both. When I think about a project that could look attractive, it is something that can be, um, they can offer upside, which means in my mind that it can be quickly developed and brought to market today but can also offer opportunities that can be exploded through the years uh, to maintain that uh, the long-lasting, the creaming curve. So uh, it will be really interesting that to find those opportunities that, that have uh, multiple, uh, uh, let's say, brownfield uh, optionality associated to. You touched on m earlier, and I just want to bring it up again to clarify a couple of points, but m has gotten much more pronounced recently with many of the majors, including BHP, buying copper assets. BHP is in the process of acquiring Oz Minerals. Rio Tinto recently acquired Turquoise Hill. And we've seen Newmont buying copper assets. Do you think M&A will continue in the copper space? I think we keep seeing M&A as a great tool to bring in uh, opportunities uh, and uh, early stage production and that it still has a lot of upside the potential to be exploited. So to me, M&A will not disappear if the right opportunities become available on the market. So we spent a lot of time on copper. I want to touch on uranium now. BHP produces a large amount of uranium as a byproduct, 4,000 tons approximately at its Olympic Dam operation in Australia. I'm surprised BHP has not made more of a focus on uranium, especially with such a positive backdrop of uranium and nuclear energy. Yeah, for sure. So if you think about uh, what has been the um, uh, the strategy of BHP is uh, to to focus uh, on uh, large scale commodities, uh, commodities that have uh, a large market uh, uh, footprint as well. And if you think about uranium, uh, it, becoming attractive for sure, 
but it still doesn't have uh, a skill that can compete uh, within our internal portfolio or whatever. Uh, well, we're gonna look, we're gonna monitor what's uh, what's happening on the uranium world, who is doing what, and there is an opportunity through the Explore program to start to look in companies that are focusing in uranium. So we can uh, through the Explore program just get a feeling for what that will look like going forward. Sonia, as we wrap up, if you could give one piece of advice to a junior exploration company, what would it be? So first of all, apply to Explorer, come with uh, your best idea and uh, your uh, your um, uh, uh, opportunity and apply to our program in September. I know it's a few months uh, out down the line, but uh, there is uh, plenty of time to set your opportunity up for success. We will uh, looking forward to hear about it and we will be looking forward to invest uh, to invest in your and in your team and your organization and not just financially but also to help you grow help to grow your business in a, a very sustainable and attractive way for the market and if someone would like more information on the BHP explore program where can they find it so you can come and visit us on our web page which is the bhp on uh, the uh, slash explorer um, you can find all the information, including uh, uh, what an application look like, uh, as well as uh, the, the terms of the contracts that we have applied for uh, the previous cohort. Well, Sonia, I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your insights on BHP and the BHP Explore program. Once again, thank you. Thank you so much, James. That was a pleasure. Thanks for having me today. Well, that concludes another conference, and I want to thank all of our company participants and our corporate sponsor, Sprott Inc. We have some amazing conferences coming up, so be sure to subscribe to our channel, Bloor Street Capital, and you can also listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you for your support. <music>